Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Serena. And you're listening to Every Rom-Com, the podcast where we have fun taking romantic comedies seriously. This week, we're continuing our high school movie series with a look at John Hughes's directorial debut. We'll explore the tropes, styles, music, and stars of Hughes's films. We'll discuss the parts of his movies that haven't aged well, from a controversial character to the treatment of a passed-out prom queen. And we'll explore the allure and angst of a 16th birthday as we talk about the 1984 high school movie, 16 Candles. Serena. Hi, Jen. How are you? I'm doing okay. Um, I feel like we're starting the high school movie series like all over again, even though like I we recorded Can't Hardly Wait. And I also recorded some kind of wonderful with some other people. But like, this like movie just feels like starting over again to me. You know what I mean? Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, I get it. I get it. Like this is like the first high school movie I kind of remember watching because it like came out in 1984 and I was like seven years old. And like, I think this is the first time I was like watching a high school movie with people. Does it have that effect on you or like? Um, I feel like a couple other movies to me um, represented like high school teen movies more. Um probably like I remember seeing Pretty in Pink before I saw this and there's also a lot of confusion in my head as to like what teen movies came before other teen movies you know so I was very sure so so when I saw all this stuff this was like you know a decade after these movies came out is when I started watching these movies so yeah it's kind of hard to put in perspective did you watch a lot of high school movies when you were a kid um yeah mostly because they were like on tv like and this is going back to like network tv like we're both we're both from like the midwest so i remember like wgn like out of chicago played a lot of these movies like on during saturdays like saturday afternoons i remember watching ferris bueller's day off quite a bit and then the breakfast club was seemed to be on all the time and um, (laughs) i don't i don't remember this one being like on as much um we didn't really even have a vcr until like i was a little bit older so yeah i don't remember like renting these movies or anything but i do remember seeing them like they are they are part of like my memory but i'm not really sure like how old i was because i would have been like really young like when you got a little older like or in general like did you have a favorite teen movie like were the ones you mentioned were those your favorites or like Probably The Breakfast Club was really like the movie that I re- I remember skipping school to watch The Breakfast Club, <laughs> which is sort of like seriously. <laughs> yes, I remember that very clearly. Um, it's like skipping school and then watching Breakfast Club. Um, at, like, were you watching? House. Were you? Oh, oh, okay. At a friend's. So you weren't watching alone. You you like no, watched no. it with a friend. It, it, it was usually like a, a like a heist. Like we would like skip school together. <laughs> it would be like a a mission. And then we would, and then okay. you skip school, you don't really do anything. You just like go to someone's house, hoping someone's parents aren't home and just, you know, dick around. So, <laughs> well, this one I think was my favorite for a long time because like one of my uncles said that it was his favorite and I really kind of idolized my uncle. So I think like 
I wanted it to be my favorite too, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So okay. yeah, there was this one. And then later, like when I was more like having my own independent opinions about teen films, like some kind of wonderful became kind of my favorite of the Hughes kind of oeuvre. And then like, I also really liked those really wacky John Cusack movies, like Better Off Dead and like One Crazy Summer. Have you okay. seen those? Yes, I have. I have. Yeah. Yeah, no, I love the the wacky style of the John Cusack ones. And I think I always kind of related to John Cusack's character in things. There was something about him that I related to. And then like later in high school, like Heathers came out, you know, Heathers actually came out when I was 12, but like like in high school, it became in middle school, maybe even it became like my teen movie, I think. So I think Heathers might be the one that like best expressed like my feeling about what high school was like kind of a dark side of it and then later of course we talked about can't hardly wait i was already out of high school when that came out but like kind of retrospectively i feel like that did a good job of covering it what about like the later 80s and the 90s teen movies or even the 2000s are there any of those that like kind of spoke to you um you know i'm kind of like trying to think of like what those would have been and i guess not i mean the one i really sticks out to me which i don't even know if it's like a teen movie is edward scissorhands was like the movie that i also associated with like that age frame which is like a completely different like category even though it does it does have some tie-ins but yeah i don't i don't really know i was i was watching like other movies i was watching like film on louise and like fried green tomatoes and like that (laughs) those were like my comfort movies so yeah i don't know and and were there any like teen TV shows that you watched or stuff like that? Like I definitely watched Beverly Hills 90210. Like I didn't really watch it after my teen years. Like it wasn't something I went back to, but um, I watched that. And then I watched Dawson's Creek in college for oh, sure. Did you? Oh, did like, you? See, I didn't watch yeah. any of that stuff. Yeah. I, I watched okay. like Saved by the Bell when I was like younger, but I never got into 90210. I got into the OC a little bit. Oh, um maybe like the first like couple seasons but for some reason like that that time frame doesn't really like hold my interest like I'm not really that interested in in those years I know lots of people are like I have friends that are just like they love teens and teenagers and even like like they want to know about teenagers lives and like I'm I'm just not that interested so even when I was a teenager I think I was more interested in like older older type movies quote unquote mm-hmm. yeah no I've continued to be interested in watching teen movies so like I and I don't know what it's not so much that like I want to know what teenagers are doing I feel like it's because a lot of times teenage and high school movies focus so much on relationships because these are people who don't necessarily have jobs yet so you can spend a lot of time focusing on like their interpersonal relationships and like yeah, their romantic relationships, their friendships, and like their conflicts with their family in a way that like sometimes adult shows I think are more about pressures of like jobs and money. And so maybe there's something like escapist about watching like teenage movies. So when you watch a teen movie, um, do you relate to the teen characters at all like these days or like did you then? Um, well, recently I know that we I talked about this a while ago like over the pandemic I watched Normal People which was about um, high schoolers and their relationships. And that I was really into. So I'm not, I don't, maybe it's like the writing of it. Like I prefer like maybe deeper writing. I, I'm not, I'm not sure. Like it's not always the case, 
that I'm not interested, but it really takes like a special kind of show or movie um, for me to get into like the lives of teenagers. I am interested in maybe watching like Euphoria. I haven't seen that yet, but I think that does cover like a darker side of like current teenager dumb that could be interesting. So yeah, I don't know. I, it's the fluffy aspects of it that I, that I, I don't really like uh, get on with. Wow, we are like uh, we are like yin and yang on this particular episode. <laughs> Perfect. So before we get started today, a few notes. First, as usual, we will have a spoiler-free section at the beginning of the episode, and we will warn you when the spoilers are about to begin. And always also feel free to check our show notes where we will also mark the spoilers. And we will also give you timestamps. So if you want to skip around, listen to different parts of the show, that's where you can look. We'd also like to remind you that you can follow the podcast on social media. Our Facebook page is Every Romcom Podcast and Blog. Our Instagram is at Every Romcom. And our Twitter handle is at Every Romcom Pod. And as always, you can find the podcast at everyromcom.com. Send us feedback at feedback at everyromcom.com. And if you like what you are listening to, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And finally, we now have a way for listeners to help support the show. If you appreciate what we do here, please visit our Buy Me a Coffee page at buymeacoffee.com backslash every rom-com. All donations go towards producing our show, and it really makes a big difference. Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes where you can donate and thanks in advance. Now, let's listen to part of the trailer for 16 Candles. So, I mean, what's the story? I mean, you got a guy or...? Yes, three big ones and they less went blood. Her name is Samantha Baker, and today is her 16th birthday. Red, she's gotten her boobies. Oh, <laughs> I'd better go get my magnifying glass. They forgot my birthday. Classic. This is the single worst day of my entire life. Universal Pictures presents... <laughs> Score, a direct hit. 16 Candles. The story of a girl who's stuck with a guy who's driving her crazy. Nice manners, babe. And stuck on a guy she's crazy about. Who's Jake? Jake Ryan? Jake's my boy. Jake is a senior, and he's beautiful and perfect. He doesn't even know you exist. He smiles at me, and I don't say anything. I can't believe I'm such a jerk. You quit feeling sorry for yourself. It's bad for your complexion. Do you know Samantha Baker? Kids are looking at me a lot. It's kind of cool the way she's always looking at me. Maybe she's retarded. What's happening, the hot stuff? His name is Long Duck Dong. Nothing could shock me anymore. Underpants. Can I borrow your underpants for 10 minutes? Girls underpants. Hate that rock and roll rubbish. All right. So you hear this trailer. Yeah, that's like the whole movie. (laughs) Yeah, but it's like really poorly done, though. It's just like, like, it's a bunch of clips of people saying shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, that's what the movie is, right? (laughs) Kinda. No. (laughs) Like, there's... There's like there's like storylines in this movie and there's like romance in this movie. There's some fucking great scenes in this movie and they've reduced it to a bunch of one-liners and like gags and I'm like, "Hmm, 
I don't like it. Maybe maybe you agree that that's what the movie's like, so we'll get to that later, though. <laughs> yeah. So some basic information here. 16 Candles came out on May 4th, 1984. It is written and directed by John Hughes, and it stars Molly Ringwald, Anthony Michael Hall, Michael Schofling, and Gede Watanabe. So the basic premise is it's Samantha Baker's 16th birthday, but her family has forgotten all about it since they're all caught up in preparations for her older sister's wedding. The wedding has also brought both sets of grandparents to Samantha's house, along with one of their exchange students. At school, Samantha is being pestered by a geeky freshman called Farmer Ted while she pines over handsome senior Jake Ryan. Will Samantha's birthday be a total disaster or will all of her wishes come true? Okay, so there's so many interesting facts to know about 16 Candles. Like, first, it's important to kind of put it in the context of, like, how significant this movie was at the time it came out and how significant John Hughes was to the teen movie genre. So, like, as imperfect and kind of problematic as it might seem today... This was like a step forward for teen movies in 1984. Um, There was like maybe one previous movie like Fast Times at Ridgemont High that had started to kind of show signs of like developing the teen genre into being something more than like exploitation. But like even that movie kind of had some exploitative moments and like it didn't feel like it was creating a whole new genre. It kind of felt like more like a one off. Like, are you a fan of Fast Times? Yeah, yeah. How would you? I've seen it. Yeah. Okay. I I haven't watched it in a while, so I I can't say for sure like how well 16 Candles does something different, but I do feel that it does in having uh, Molly Ringwald as the female protagonist, like having this one central woman character, I think does do something for the genre. Right. I agree. I agree. So Molly Ringwald wrote in The New Yorker in 2018 that in the early 80s, quote, no one in Hollywood was writing about the minutia of high school and certainly not from a female point of view. And Roger Ebert dubbed Hughes, quote, the creator of the modern American teenager film. He added that, quote, he took teenagers seriously and his films are distinctive for showing them as individuals with real hopes, ambitions, problems and behavior, end quote. I think that's like one of the keys. Like it was like we did. We had a quiz on our Can't Hardly Wait episode about a number of teen films. And there was like a smattering of them. Um, throughout the you know 50s 60s 70s but like the 80s is kind of when it coalesced into a whole serious genre I think yeah and like this kind of 80s teen movie became the new thing like there had been stuff like Porky's that was more like a sex exploitation film so there was that too but this was kind of John Hughes created a new kind of maybe not family oriented but it's like certainly like more serious kind of yeah. um, work And then Ebert actually had interviewed John Hughes at the time he was making The Breakfast Club. And Hughes told him, quote, kids are smart enough to know that most teenage movies are just exploiting them. They'll respond to a film about teenagers as people. I think teenage girls are especially grossed out by all the sex and violence in most teenage movies. People forget that when you're 16, you're probably more serious than you'll ever be again. You think seriously about the big questions, end quote. So yeah, it was like, he was definitely had a philosophy about what he wanted to create. I don't know if he succeeded in creating that as much with 16 Candles as he did with The Breakfast Club, but it was a start. So 16 Candles was Hugh's directorial debut, um, and it was the first in his run of teen movies that he wrote. He wrote the part of Samantha Baker in 16 Candles, 
with a headshot of Molly Ringwald kind of hanging over his work area. Apparently he hadn't met Molly Ringwald, he, but he like somehow his, her picture inspired him like to write a movie about what he thought that type of teenage girl would be like. Inter- interesting. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I can tell you want to say more about that. Would you? <laughs> well, I mean, obviously now when you, when you like think back on it, it's like you, there's this, how old was John Hughes at the time in his thirties, forties, when he was writing this, you know, like, you're like, what, what was his twenties late, late. He was in, so John, specifically he was in his like late twenties, I would say like, am I right about that? Let me look really quick. Okay. Oh, 1950. No. Okay. No. 1950. He was in his early thirties. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, you know, what, what was like his, if he had a wife, like what was his wife thinking at the time that he's got this like headshot of this girl, you know, and he's like furiously typing away. Like, I mean, I guess writers a lot of times have muses and, and Molly, Molly Ringwald was his. Um, But yeah, there, there is some like troublesome aspects of it and also troublesome aspects of what, what is a, 30 something year old guy think he knows about what a teenage girl is thinking or feeling you know so i mean i think some things are spot on and and we'll and we'll talk about that later but other things are really like uh like it obviously written by a man well the funny the funny thing is like molly ringwald uh says that she felt like a real affinity for hughes and felt that like she he did kind of get her she said i felt like he really got me i felt completely understood and like they had like this other thing where they had the same birthday of February 18th. So they had this kind of like um, very close onset relationship, but her mom was there too. So it's not like they were hanging out alone together or something like that. But um, yeah, it definitely has like a mentor, like a teacher student, like mentor thing going on. And like, I think by today's standards, it might sound a little creepy, but yeah, a little, Molly Ringwald a little, always felt A little like, grooming, yeah. a little grooming, <laughs> a little... Uh... But... Okay, I hesitate to ever use the word grooming, though, in a situation where nobody has ever, like, um, you know, said that somebody sexually assaulted them, though. And I think Molly Ringwald probably would have said that. Right. Like, because she's been pretty right. open about her problems right. with the films. So I, I wouldn't use that term, really. But I think, like, it's a kind of relationship that we don't view as appropriate anymore. I would Correct. say Correct. Yes. Correct. Anyway, so let's see. So Ringwald actually had a crush on um, John Hughes at the time that they were filming these movies. She said, it's pretty heady stuff to have somebody who is so inspired by you that they are writing movies for you and studios are doing them. Ringwald also had a crush on an actor who almost got cast as Jake Ryan instead of Michael Schofling. So apparently Viggo Mortensen was a finalist for the role. And Ringwald said he made her feel weak in the knees when she auditioned with him. I can imagine. So another set crush, Anthony Michael Hall got a crush on Molly Ringwald while filming 16 Candles. And later they briefly dated for a few months um, towards the end of shooting The Breakfast Club. And I think a little bit after that is the timeline I saw for that. So the movie was shot around Skokie and Highland Park, Illinois for six weeks in the summer of 1983, which was also kind of different. Like most movies were being filmed in LA. So another thing Hughes did was um, make middle America kind of a more popular uh, place to have Hollywood movies set. Right. Mm-hmm. There was that whole era of like Chicago and the suburbs of Chicago um, is huge. That's what I think of when I think of like 80s movies as Chicago. Okay, so the film had a budget of $6.5 million and it grossed about $23.5 million, which, you know, isn't a ton. But of course, it became this huge hit on VHS um, and DVD 
And, you know, people still watch it today. And near the end of filming, Hughes asked Molly Ringwald and Anthony Michael Hall to read the script for The Breakfast Club. And of course, they went on to star in that movie, along with Ali Sheedy, Emilio Estevez and Judd Nelson, and became part of like the kind of group known as the Brat Pack as a result. So, yep. And Sixteen Candles has created a number of iconic scenes, characters, and lines of dialogue, and it continues to be referenced in movies, TV shows, and books aimed at teen audiences today. I think maybe a lot of times these references now go over people's heads. Right. But yeah, there's actually a specific reference to this movie and to all the boys I've loved before, and in one of the books that those movies are based on. So, you know, and it, and it cites the movie by title. So, like, people are still bringing it up. Selena Gomez is currently developing a TV series partly inspired by the movie called 15 Candles, and it's going to follow four Latina girls approaching their quinceanera. And to be honest, like it might be a situation, a lot of creators these days are having this situation where they only want um, movies and TV shows based on intellectual property. So people are having to squeeze their ideas into, you know, ideas that they already had. They're having to squeeze them into an intellectual property. So it might be a case of that. Right. But I mean, she could have been inspired by it. I don't know. So let's get to our general opinion. So do you remember when you first saw this movie? Did you watch it a lot when you were younger? And like, have you watched it over the years? And how does it strike you now on this most recent Um No and no. No, I don't remember watching it a whole lot. Um, I haven't watched it a lot since maybe my preteens, I guess, or teenage years. So yeah, it, it didn't, there is the final scene, which like, I won't talk about, but I do remember that that seems <laughs> to have like the biggest impact on me um, or the mm-hmm. biggest part of my memory. Um, and also the, just the reference of Jake Ryan as well as like someone being like a Jake, a Jake mm-hmm. Ryan to someone, which is like, and I I've heard that like people have mentioned that and have said that as basically someone like unattainable that you have like a crush on or like the ultimate, like fantasy boy yeah so yeah there are a few things that you know have stuck with me but i mean other than that yeah like i said i've I've always been more pulled towards like the breakfast club or even pretty in pink as as far as like quotable movies or movies that i would watch over and over again and how about like this most recent viewing like what's your general opinion of it did you enjoy it like um what did what did you get out I of it? I did. I Seen did it enjoy it a lot, mostly because it is so. At this point, like I said, 1983 is 40 years ago. 1984, you know, almost 40 years ago. It's so dated now that it's like fascinating. You know what I mean? Like it's fascinating. Like um, there's a scene, and and I don't know, maybe it, it, this could be part of spoilers, but there's a car phone, and I was like, holy shit, <laughs> a car phone. You know what I mean? Like it's so. It, but with a cord, right? It I has, think like, so. Yeah, I think it's it, like right? connected to yeah. the car. And, you know, it's just like <laughs> those things that that aren't doesn't seem that long ago, but they are. And just how quickly things have like advanced. But also some of like the social things are still sort of the same, you know, and still kind of like relevant, you know, like having a crush and conversations with your friends and like the disconnect with your parents, you know. Yeah, if if anything, I was just like, just really fascinated when I was watching it. So like I said, I've already mentioned that I grew up with aunts and uncles, but my youngest uncle was only 10 years older than me. 
And like, he told me at one point that it was his favorite movie. I have this memory of him telling me this and I like worshiped him. So I wanted to do like all the things he did. So I watched the movie with him and I really liked it too, as a result. And like in his bedroom, when he was growing up, he had a picture of Molly Ringwald on the wall, like from her cover of Time Magazine that she was on. Okay. So like, she was a big deal in the eighties in general. And I loved the movie when I was a kid. I remember though, there were definitely parts of it that made me feel icky. Like, I I remember that being a kid that like, I felt icky about pretty much any time Anthony Michael Hall's character was on screen. (laughs) And like, we'll talk about that during his scenes a little bit. But Jake Ryan, I was like, I was sold on the whole romantic aspect of it. Um, And I really liked the character of Long Duck Dong. So that's going to be an interesting conversation because I see, of course, problems with it. But simultaneously, I feel like Gede Watanabe maybe had one of the best performances in the movie. I think he has real comic chops and like, I, I love that character. I would quote the automobile scene so much, like, and people would quote it in school too. And like, I didn't feel at the time, like, and I could be wrong. I did not feel that we were quoting it in, in a way to like make fun of the character so much as we thought he was cool and kind of a hero in the movie. We didn't have a ton of Asian students in our school either though. So it's really hard to say like, how would that have changed if people were using these lines on Asian students? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Yeah, we'll get we'll get more into depth on that. But like uh, later in the episode, we're gonna have a whole section we can talk about that. But basically, I I really liked his character. I really liked Molly Ringwald's character. I related to her in certain ways, and I really liked the romance, um, the comedy, the wacky aspects, the geek thing didn't work for me as well. But I really felt like, um, especially once I got to high school and middle school, that there was a realism to the way that students dealt with each other. I mean, it's really harsh in this movie at times, right? right. Like yeah. teenagers are swearing. Um, teenagers are, you know, mean to each other. Teenagers are like unpopular and like despairing. And that is real. Like that shit happens. So I appreciated that about the movie. It, like like John Hughes was trying to take teenagers seriously. I feel that he did. I felt that he took seriously that it's not a picnic. And it's also not a picnic dealing with all your family pressures. Like, be nice to your grandparents, even though they're kind of weird. And like, (laughs) go to these family occasions and have fights with your siblings. And it's like a whole universe of stuff. And my uncle, like, I kind of talked to him about it also just to kind of like, you know, check in with him about how he feels about it. And he said, while he liked the movie a lot in the 80s, he definitely sees the problems with it now. But he did say that it felt like he was like the age of these characters. And he said that he did felt it was accurate in terms of how it portrayed high school. Like it felt like how people really talked and it felt like how high school really was. And then he told me he added that high school really was racist, sexist and homophobic in the 80s. I'm sure. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it kind of was in the 90s, too, really. So I'm pretty sure it is today as well, just in a different way. Anyway, so like at the time I loved it and now I, I less love it. And like a lot of it's to do with kind of this, the, the content um, that's kind of misogynistic in the movie. But there are some scenes in the movie that are absolutely iconic. One of them you mentioned and like we'll talk about them as we go. All right, let's do the casting crew. So I'm going to cover I'm going to cover the man himself, John Hughes. So John Hughes has become synonymous with a category of films like John Hughes films. There are movies that he didn't even make that he didn't write even that I think people will sometimes refer to as a John Hughes film now. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes, for sure. But like, yeah, his name's synonymous with this kind of genre, but he only made six movies specifically about high school age protagonists. And he's really made a lot of other movies too, which I discovered. 
So he was born in 1950 in Michigan. And then his family moved to Northbrook, Illinois, when he was in the seventh grade. And he was kind of living in the same kind of environments that his characters live in in these movies. So he kind of knew that terrain. As a young teen, he began sending jokes to Rodney Dangerfield, and he also painted. He briefly attended the University of Arizona as an art major before dropping out. And when he was 20 years old, he married his wife, Nancy, and he stayed with her until his death. And they had a few kids as well. At 21, he began working in advertising. He stayed in advertising for seven years, but like at the same time, he began writing for the National Lampoon magazine, which is a humor magazine. So Hughes had a few earlier IMDb credits, but his big break as a writer was in 1983 with the double success of National Lampoon's Vacation and Mr. Mom. And after selling those screenplays, he was given the chance to direct 16 Candles, but he originally wanted to start with The Breakfast Club. But instead, in 1985, The Breakfast Club became his next project after 16 Candles. And in 1985, he also wrote and directed Weird Science, which I haven't seen Weird Science in like forever. I would be really curious to see what yeah, that Yeah, you know, like I never liked Weird Science. I never liked that movie. Like you talked about how like something kind of like gave you the, the creeps or like made you feel uncomfortable when you were younger. And Weird, Weird yeah. Science was that movie for me. Like I was never, I, I never <laughs> yeah. got on board with that movie. And I, I don't even know if I've seen it all the way through, but even it just being like on in like my periphery, like I was, I, I was like, no, this is, this is not for me. I, I definitely watched it the whole thing when I was a kid, but yeah, I, I did not feel it was a movie made for me in any way, <laughs> shape or form. I was like, yeah, yeah. Some young horny teenage kids create an ideal woman. Like where, where, where do I come in here? <laughs> exactly. You know, anyway. So in 1986, Hughes wrote and directed Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and then he handed off his other screenplay, Pretty in Pink, to Howard Deutsch. And Howard Deutsch, of course, directed Some Kind of Wonderful, which is the last film we talked about, in 1987 for Hughes, while Hughes directed his other screenplay for Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. So Hughes finished out the 80s by writing and directing She's Having a Baby and Uncle Buck and writing National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation and The Great Outdoors. But like in 1990, Home Alone was his biggest box office success as a writer. Like I don't even really associate him with Home Alone. I didn't really remember that he wrote it. Did you? No, but it makes complete sense. Like, like when you're looking at it, watching it, like even where it takes place, like, yeah, that that's totally him. But I guess I never made that association. No. So in 1991, Curly Sue was his last film as a director. And also in 1991, Career Opportunities came out. But um, Hughes wanted his name taken off the film because he called it cheap and vulgar. And I got to say, I actually like Career, career Opportunities. What? It is a what little is that vulgar. Is that the, is that the movie seen this? where like, oh my God. Jennifer Connelly's like riding a pony in like a grocery store or something? That that. that's that yes. clip so is Frank, always Frank, yeah. being shown. I have. I don't think I've seen the whole yeah. thing, but I know that clip. Okay, okay. I got to tell you what the premise is because I, I do actually. I have a soft spot in my heart for this movie. Like Frank Whaley is the star, and he starts working at a Target. They actually Target actually let them use the name of their store in the movie, which is amazing. Um, and he's work trapped in the Target overnight cleaning. But like Jennifer Connelly has also hid out in the store for her own reasons. 
And like, they have this like slow developing like romance with each other because they're both trapped in this store and somebody's trying to rob it. Um, Dermot Mulroney, he's trying to rob it. That's right. And like, there's a scene where they're like roller skating together, like in the Target and they're like playing with all the stuff in the Target. And I thought that was such a fun movie when I was a kid. I don't know. I thought it was sweet. So other films written by Hughes in the 90s included Beethoven, two sequels to Home Alone, uh, Baby's Day Out, which I used to make fun of that title all the time. I thought, I've never seen it though. And then he did um, a few adaptations of earlier films, including Miracle on 34th Street, 101 Dalmatians, and Flubber. And those are the kind of movies that would come to the movie theater and I'd be like, oh my God, another one of these. So I had no idea Hughes was associated with them. Uh-huh. Do you yeah, know I, mean, I, mean? I remember Flubber. Like, what is that movie? <laughs> like, Flubber. I don't, I don't, I mean, Miracle on 34th Street, 101 Dalmatians, but Flubber or Baby's Day Out. I, yeah, I also remember that being like, what is this movie? Yeah, his quality of his work, I think, by most people's uh, estimates, probably went down mm-hmm. as he got older, unfortunately. So Hughes gave his last interview in 1999. And he largely retreated from Hollywood. He had always chosen to live in Illinois, however. In the 2000s, he wrote the time travel comedy Just Visiting. He co-wrote the rom-com Made in Manhattan. So that's the Jennifer Lopez one. It's not bad. And he wrote the story for a movie called Drillbit Taylor. And that is his last credit before his death. Like, of course, people will have credits sometimes after their death because they created characters and so forth. And so there's a few of those. So in addition to writing and directing, Hughes produced many of his films, starting with The Breakfast Club in 1985, and he died of a heart attack in 2009 at 59 years old. And he had quite a few tributes when he died. Um, The New York Times critic A.O. Scott wrote this about him, quote, John Hughes was our Godard, the filmmaker who crystallized our attitudes and anxieties with just the right blend of teasing and sympathy. So he got compared to Godard there. I'm like, whoa. Okay. And Molly Ringwald wrote, in life, there is always that special person who shapes who you are, who helps determine the person you become. Very often, it's a teacher, a mentor of some kind. For me, that person was John Hughes. So if you had to choose like um, three of John Hughes films to be like your favorites of all time, and that can include not just the teen films, but any of them, what would be your three? Probably The Breakfast Club. Uncle Buck. I love that movie. I love Uncle Buck. Like I could <laughs> I could watch Uncle Buck like over and over again. I think that movie is hilarious. Um and I mean and all those those movies you listed. I mean, I really love um National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. I know he just wrote it, but um I love that movie as well. Again, yeah. another movie I could just watch over and over again. So that one or The Great Outdoors. I also love The Great Outdoors. Yeah, I would put Scow, Some Kind of Wonderful, as my all-time number one. Just like it, it has a place in my heart forever. Um, then Pretty in Pink, which some people say is similar to Scow, But, you know, I like it because it's another lower class character. It's another female viewpoint perspective with Molly Ringwald. I guess Scow isn't a female viewpoint perspective, but it's a sensitive perspective. And then I guess number three, it's really, okay, it's really hard for me not to put career opportunities in here. I'm going to go with The Breakfast Club because it is a better movie, but like, I feel like career opportunities doesn't get enough love. I probably should watch it again just to make sure it's not totally crazy now, but I think I watched it a couple years ago and still liked it, so I don't know. Anyway, yeah, Breakfast Club, Some Kind of Wonderful, and Pretty in Pink. And then Career Opportunities is my um, dark horse contender. Okay. Yeah. All right, we'll move on. 
to Molly Ringwald. All right. So Molly Ringwald was born in 1968 in a suburb of Sacramento, California. Her mother was a chef and her father was Bob Ringwald, a blind jazz musician and radio host. Ringwald began acting on the stage at age five and recorded vocals on a jazz album at age six. Her first professional stage role was at age 10 as one of the orphans in Annie. At age 11, she appeared in the first season of The Facts of Life, as well as two episodes of Different Strokes. She made her film debut in the movie Tempest, a modernization of the Shakespeare play. She was nominated for a Golden Globe for New Star of the Year for that role. Sixteen Candles in 1984 was her true breakout role, however. She cemented her teen movie stardom with roles in Hughes's follow-up movies, The Breakfast Club in 1985, and Pretty in Pink in 1986. In 1986, Ringwald was on the cover of Time magazine with the headline, Ain't She Sweet? <laughs> Interesting. Okay. <laughs> in the late 80s, she starred in The Pickup Artist with Robert Downey Jr. and the teen pregnancy movie Four Keeps, as well as Fresh Horses, which also starred her pretty and pink love interest, Andrew McCarthy. Ringwald has never again achieved the iconic status she had in the 80s, but she continued to work in the 90s, even after moving to Paris in 1992. In the 90s, she appeared in films including Betsy's Wedding, office killer and teaching mrs tingle she also took the main female role of franny in the 1994 miniseries version of the stand and co-starred in the tv show townies in 1996 ringwald didn't take many roles in the early 2000s but she did appear in several smaller films including cowboy up and played a small part in not another teen movie from 2008 to 2013, <laughs> Ringwald began appearing in The Secret Life of the American Teenager in the role of a mom. Ringwald also played a mom in the teen-focused show Riverdale from 2017 to 2023, in teen movies SPF 18 in 2017, and in the series of Netflix teen movies The Kissing Booth 1 through 3 starting in 2018. So yeah, that is interesting. I, I do feel yeah, like she's a lot of of actors and actresses who were like in teenage roles in their teenage or younger years do for some reason go on go on to those other shows i don't do you notice that yeah and i think it's probably deliberate on the part of the people casting because they want to bring in like the you know right. they think it's cool like i'm gonna have this teen icon right. in my teen movie maybe she can't play a teenager anymore but she right. can be in the movie yeah, and they've done that with a lot of these reboots, mm -hmm. like He's All That and exactly. stuff like that, too. Um, Ringwald also played the mom in the family comedy Raising Expectations from 2016 to 2019. Also, in the 2010s, Ringwald appeared in the movies Gem and the Holograms, King Cobra, and all of these small moments. Recently, Ringwald appeared as Jeffrey Dahmer's stepmother in Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story. Coming up, she will be in the horror movie Bad Things, coming out in August. And she's also set to appear in the movie Pursued, the movie Montauk, which is in post-production, and season two of the TV show Feud. In addition to acting, Ringwald has also worked as a singer, writer, and translator. In 2013, she released a jazz album, Except Sometimes. Ringwald also wrote the nonfiction book Getting the Pretty Back, as well as a collection of short stories, When It Happens to You. And she translated two books from French to English, Lie With Me by Philippe Besson and My Cousin Maria Schneider, a memoir by Vanessa Schneider. 
All right, and another really cool person, like, so we could have covered Anthony Michael Hall, but I wanted instead to cover Gede Watanabe, who plays Long Duck Dong, because, like, he has really not gotten his due as an actor in our environment of not having a lot of roles for Asian actors over the years, but he's still managed to do a lot. So Gede Watanabe was born in 1955 in Ogden, Utah, in a Japanese-American family. Um, he also grew up in Utah. He was a stage actor since he was a child. And after graduation, he moved to San Francisco and he worked as a street musician and studied acting. In 1976, he made his Broadway debut in the Stephen Sondheim show Pacific Overtures. And that was also presented as a TV movie, so that is also his first IMDb credit. He continued to work in theater after that, but Sixteen Candles was his breakout role in terms of film and TV. So to audition for the role, Watanabe asked a Korean-American friend of his who had an accent if he could study his accent. And he then mimicked the accent and pretended to speak little English for his audition. Um, he got cast and then later he revealed to the casting director and John Hughes that he spoke perfect English with a standard American accent. So that's kind of an interesting ploy he kind mm -hmm. of used there. I I think that it, it totally works you you would be surprised at how many people like w with me you know who isn't like typically american looking when i open my mouth and start speaking like they're flabbergasted so i think he definitely like used that to his advantage which i applaud which is like what you kind of need to do i feel like when you're in these like marginalized positions or categories or whatever you want to call it yeah. is that is that you kind of have to use people's stereotypes against them so in the 80s, Watanabe appeared in a number of other films, including Gung Ho and UHF. I watched UFF years ago, so I don't remember it well, but Gung Ho I actually watched on purpose to prepare for this film. And like he really does his best for that role, but it's a really interesting movie about like kind of it kind of is really about American anxieties about Japan and Japan taking over economically. And he's co-stars in that with um, Michael Keaton. And it's kind of a thankless role for the Japanese actors because it's definitely like the American viewpoint is prioritized, but it isn't like totally offensive towards the Japanese actors either. It's interesting. But like, yeah, Watanabe continued playing kind of more foreign characters in these in these shows because that's what, you know, they were he was being asked to do. He wasn't being asked to play just like regular guy on the street, right? Until... From 1988 to 1992, he was a regular guy on Sesame Street, where he played Hiroshi. So, and I, I watched one of his clips on Sesame Street, too, which was very charming with <laughs> Oscar the Grouch. In the 90s, Watanabe continued to work in films with roles in productions including Gremlins 2, Boys on the Side, Booty Call, and a voice acting role in Mulan, which he later reprised for Mulan 2. And then in 1997, he began playing a gay nurse named Yoshi Takata on ER, and he remained on the show until 2003. Some of his work in the 2000s included the movies Alfie and Forgetting Sarah Marshall, voice work on TV shows including Kim Possible and American Dad, and in the video game Kingdom Hearts 2. He also did several Broadway shows. In the 2010s, he did films including Parental Guidance, and worked on TV series including The Sex Lives of College Girls and Puppy Dog Pals, which that one was another voice work uh, job. And he appeared on Broadway in La Cage aux Folles and The Fantastics in the 2010s. 
Recently, he's been portraying one of the main characters on the YouTube series called The Disappointments. According to IMDb, it, quote, follows the lives of three gay men navigating midlife. And I did watch a little bit of that. I wanted to watch more, but I didn't have time. I probably will end up watching it after, after I'm done with some research here. And coming up, Watanabe will be a voice actor in Patsy Lee and the Keepers of the Five Kingdoms. So Getty Watanabe has often been interviewed about his controversial role as Long Duck Dong. And we will talk more about his thoughts on the role and people's criticisms of the role later in the episode. All right. So moving on to our Jake Ryan is played by an actor named Michael Schofling. Michael Schofling was born in 1960 in Pennsylvania. He grew up in New Jersey. He was a member of the U.S. Junior Wrestling Team, so he had experience being a real-life jock. Um, Schofling was working as a model, including for GQ, before being cast in the movie. Sixteen Candles was his first movie in his very short career, um, but his character became iconic. After Sixteen Candles... He acted in nine more movies and one TV show in the 80s and early 90s. His other work included the movies Vision Quest, Longtime Companion, and Mermaids. His last film was Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken in 1991, which I love that movie. I guess I guess now now that like oh, we're yeah? mentioning some movies that were like influential of like your like preteen years, I guess that would have been for me. I loved Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken. So sad. Um Schofling was married to fellow model and actor Valerie Robinson in 1987. In the early 90s, he quit acting to open a woodworking shop in Pennsylvania. And he and his wife have two children, Scarlett and Zane, and Scarlett works as a model. So some of the other important cast and crew include Anthony Michael Hall as the geek, Haviland Morris as Jake's girlfriend, Caroline, Justin Henry as Mike Baker, Sam's younger brother, Paul Dooley as Sam's dad, Carlin Glynn as Sam's mom. And we mentioned this in our Some Kind of Wonderful episode, but Carlin Glynn was also Mary Stuart Masterson's real-life mom. So I thought that was interesting. Um, Blanche Baker as Ginny, Sam's older sister. And then, like, many more. Like, the people playing the grandparents were kind of famous. Like, all kinds of people are just sprinkled throughout this movie. But that, that we have to end it somewhere. So there you go. Okay, okay so... Now we come to the opening of the movie and I feel like this opening is just giving us like this picture of like this quote unquote average American suburb and average American family, even though it's probably like upper middle class. Oh, definitely. Yes. Especially now, like now you look at like that, what that house would represent like in a suburb of Chicago, that's like a $2 million house, you know, if not more. Yeah, maybe not in the 80s, but yeah, like for sure now. Yeah, you just have these like tree-lined streets. And like, I like it's an interesting choice. Like he starts the movie where you hear the traffic report over the radio, even before you see anything. And you see like a, a car that's like delivering the paper. These are not characters in the movie. These are just like details of like the morning. It like just sets you in the morning in a suburb. Yeah, I think a lot of these movies do set up because I do think that the the neighborhoods themselves are also like a character. So, you know, right away, like who these people are just by like the kind of house they live in and the street that they live on. And a lot of John Hughes movies are, are like that. Yeah, yeah. And the houses look really lived in, too. 
like that, which is something I really respect, like the decor in the teen room, the decor in the, in the main house, like it's very, it's always very specific and lived in. And it's something I really admire when you watch like a Netflix teen film today, I, I was watching XO Kitty, which is like the new to all the boys spinoff show. Mm-hmm. Literally, they had a living room where there was just a bunch of fake blue books and blue knickknacks that were all the same color in the background. <laughs> and I'm like, what the fuck is that? Who lives in that house? <laughs> Nobody lives in that house. That's like an Ikea, for Christ's sakes. Right. It's like they set up the filming in an Ikea. And like, that is the opposite of what you're going to get with the John Hughes movie. Okay. And then what do you think of this family that we see as well? I mean, nothing like my family, but uh, (laughs) yeah, I guess your typical nuclear 80s family. Yeah, you've got mom as a housewife, it looks like dad is going off to work. You've got like a really crappy younger brother (laughs) who's always saying shitty things to her. And you've got like the sweet younger sister and the really weird old, the older sister in this is so weird. Right, she is. But she's kind of like a princess kind of. Right. Yeah, and she's the one getting married. We find that out in this initial scene. So then we get introduced to Sam. We get to the sense she's going to be a main character because we go into her bedroom. And there's a scene where she's looking in her mirror and she says to herself, chronologically, you're 16 today. Physically, you're still 15. And she's just like looking at herself in the mirror and like evaluating. A lot of it's her bust line. And it's interesting because like, I think when, by the time we were teenagers, I think like push-up bras were coming into fashion for like teenagers too, but she's just wearing this like camisole and stuff. You know what I mean? Right. I thought about that. I thought, I thought about how like the breast obsession really didn't change, but like people just started faking it more maybe. Yeah. I don't know. You're, you've, you saw a lot more in this scene than I did, I think. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah. See, I completely related to this because I was very flat chested. So I was very flat chested in middle school. Uh And like it was a and people would make fun of me for it. They would specifically make fun of me for having a flat chest like girls and boys would. And so I was I had a huge complex about it. And like I didn't really grow much breast until like maybe even middle of college. Right. Like I felt I felt weird about it. I felt like I was less of a woman in some way. And so when I look at this character of Samantha and she's like obsessing about it, I completely relate to her. Like, uh-huh. I was like, yeah, I get it. It feels, it sucks. Huh. Okay. Interesting. This yeah. Is, I never had that This is not experience. something you relate to, huh? Yeah. No, no. It's so, it's so interesting. Did you ever like look in the mirror and like evaluate yourself physically in any way or were you just free oh, of yeah. these neuroses yeah, somehow? For, sh- for sure. For sure. But I, yeah, I don't remember like the breasts being like a thing. I, I remember it being part of, I, I mean, I was, I don't think I'd ever consider myself like flat chested, but I've never had like large breasts, but I, I've always been grateful for that. Actually, even from a very young age, I was always grateful that I didn't have bigger breasts because my mom had really big breasts and she complained about them horribly. <laughs> so I think that kind of gave me like, oh, I don't want that, you know? <laughs> Yeah. Um, so I think I was saved that that shame or whatever. Yeah, I was pretty judgmental of myself, but maybe not more f- as physically as just like situationally, if that makes sense. Like, I just always felt a little misplaced. Like I think I wanted, you know, maybe a more of a nuclear family at that age 
or having nicer things or access to things that a lot of people around me seem to have access to, whether it was like cars or nice vacations. You know, we didn't, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. So it was just like, um, I felt like I was missing out on a lot of like luxuries that even looking back weren't even really luxuries, but yeah, I think that's what like I was a little more focused on as opposed to like physically like wondering about myself. Yeah. Like I, I on one hand, like that your kind of neuroses sound just as bad, like just as like difficult to deal with. But on the other hand, like I'm always stunned whenever I talk to a woman who like when they were like in middle school and high school, wasn't like obsessing about their body on some level. <laughs> Cause it's like, it was such a huge part of like, um, my self-esteem being low was people commenting to me, other students commenting to me on what I looked like and telling me that I was ugly or didn't fit in. And like that really hitting home and making me feel terrible about myself for many years. Like I didn't feel pretty until maybe my late twenties. Oh wow! I didn't yeah. start feeling pretty. Yeah. Like I could intellectually say to myself, oh, you look good, Jennifer, but I didn't feel it. You know what I mean? Right. Right. Yeah. No, I get that. I get that. But yeah, yeah, no, I was never, um, no, I actually had like in, in that way, in like a physical sense, I actually had like, I think I had pretty good self-esteem about myself, but also keep in mind is like in the Midwest, I was sort of an anomaly physically. So no one, no one really made fun of me, which is sort of funny, Hmm. like not, not to that aspect, like some like little things, but I, I think I was just like more of like, like not even like in, I was never even in like the category. Like, you know what I mean? Like I was never even like, mm-hmm. I don't think I was like thought about that much in, in those ways enough thought about enough to even get made fun of. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? I suppose so. I can understand what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. so people weren't considering you as a potential dating partner or something is what you're saying. Right. Or like exactly. as a competition. That- yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was just like, I was yeah. so like in this like other category that it was just like, oh, well, we don't even know where to put you. So <laughs> it's not, it's like, just like a non-issue, you know? Hmm. So I, yeah. I, so I almost had to develop a little bit more of like my own, I guess, style and interests. Mm-hmm. I started, I started going down the avenue of like my interests became like what represented me as opposed to like necessarily like what I looked like. Oh yeah. Well, for me too, like I didn't really do much to like make myself look different. Right. Yeah. And I wasn't obsessed with it, but it it hurt, but it hurt. Like it a hundred percent hurt walking down a hall and having someone call you like a flat chested bitch or like being in the locker room and people making fun of you. Yeah. So that's the level on which I relate to Samantha in the movie the most Mm -hmm. is just her sense of insecurity. Like that meant something to me to have a character representing that instead of these idealized. So like in a lot of Hughes' other movies, you'll have a really pretty teenage girl or something like Ferris Bueller or whatever. Mm -hmm. Didn't relate to that. But in this movie, there's just like just, you know, outcast kind of, well, not an out, she's not an outcast, but she's not the prettiest girl in the room kind of girl. Right. And I was like, that's the level on which I related to Molly Ringwald. And I think that's the level on which a lot of teens related to Molly Ringwald, right? Because she wasn't supposed to be the most attractive girl. She was just supposed to be kind of normal and maybe even like looked down upon sometimes. All right. Anyway, let's um let's get into like a little clip. And this clip is going to sort of introduce uh, Samantha. She's going to be talking on the phone with her friend. And then we're going to see her family or we're going to hear her family come in. No, I didn't expect to wake up transformed. 
I just thought that turning 16 would be so major that I'd wake up with an improved mental state that would show on my face. All it shows that I don't have any sort of a tan left. I better get downstairs. My family's probably pissed off I haven't let them wish me happy birthday yet. All right, I see it's cool. You need four inches of bod and a great birthday. Where's my briefcase? Where'd you leave it? Don't be a smartass. Hey, I'll be a dumbass. Okay, where's Sam? Where's my briefcase? Sam! Love me, Brenda. Hey, birth defect! You missed breakfast again. Wasn't my idea to give her her own phone line. I don't have my own phone line. Grab a donut. It's small, it's brown, it's made of leather. It has my initials on it. I believe that's it. Don't forget, the grandparents are coming this afternoon. Are we still having dinner with the rice checks? Riz checks, 8 o'clock at the club. Oh, and you better learn their names as of tomorrow, their family. That's a lovely thought. When it comes your turn to get married, do me a favor. Who married her? Mr. T. Oh, I'm sorry. You'll have to buy lunch today. I didn't have time to fix your carrots. Yeah, well, she's only eating carrots to increase the size of her breasts. Mr. You had better shape up or you will miss your sister's wedding. Promise? Now, don't give me that pouty look of yours. You can eat your carrots when you get home. That's it? You don't have anything else to say to me today? What would you like me to say, Sam? Come on now, honey. You're going to miss the bus. Have a good day. I can't believe this. They fucking forgot my birthday. <laughs> I love that line. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I love that, like, a teenager is allowed to swear, and they're allowed to swear the way a teenager really swears. Yeah, he really did get that right. Like that I think that's why these characters are so relatable is because they do talk the way real people talk. Whereas I I think that sometimes teenage movies miss that mark. And do you know here's an interesting fact too. Like um 16 Candles like at the time was rated PG. Oh, so they didn't really consider swearing as being like a a factor. Like, well, it was rated before, it was released before the PG-13 rating existed. But like, like at that time, PG could mean there was swearing. And we do see like naked breasts at one point too. Oh, yeah. So like, it's like, yeah, it just really shows you like how the MPAA is just such a fickle, arbitrary system in a way. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I, I wanted to also mention, though, I love the little brother character in this movie. So like, he's such an asshole. He's like, yeah. his, I, and like in this clip, like you can't see it, but like he's doing this like, ooh, like thing with hand gesture and face to his mom when she says, you're going to miss your sister's wedding. He's so perfect. He's just like the worst 13 year old, 14 year old kid you could ever meet. And it's just dead on. Right. Anything else you want to say about this scene at all? I think it just kind of sets everything up and now we know what the plot is. Yeah. Yeah. We kind of have the whole deal. And, um, oh yeah. One other thing I just want to talk about too, is I had my own phone line in high school and I still do remember the days when like you would spend so much time on the phone to your friends who you were going to see like right away at high school anyway. And then you'd come home and half the time you'd call your friends again. So like I was on my phone line a lot, mostly to Jenny Wozniak. <laughs> That's funny. 
Okay, so let's get into now the credits montage. And I just want to say, I think this is one of the best credit sequence that has ever been made. And it really establishes that this is a high school movie. It really like, it really just like right away shows you this. We showed this family, but this is going to be about the high school. This is going to center around these kids because they even the title card, 16 Candles, it goes up over the high school and it stays there for a little while. The exterior shot of the high school. Mm -hmm. And I, I love it. It's very artfully done, this whole thing. I do really like it. And it is, I do think opening um, montage scenes or whatever you call it are super important for movies because they do set it up. The other, the only other movie I can think of that has like a better opening, like high school montage like that is Donnie Darko. Oh. Donnie, Donnie Darko has an amazing opening high school, which I think is better than this is a little more like dramatic, but this, I almost watching them both. I guess I could see that, that, director cinematographer was very influenced by this opening scene because it does sort of like interesting introduce like the characters and like or like i don't know just like some funny little things things like that i don't know yeah but it is excellent it is a really great opening was that the scene where they have the music head over heels in it like i remember there was a scene uh, with head over heels yes it is by tears for fears it okay. is yeah. cool so this mu this montage is set to the music of Kaja Gugu, and they're the ones who did the song Too Shy Shy, Hush Hush Eye to Eye, if you remember that song at all. That was their famous song. They did the opening title music for this. It doesn't really show too many of the characters that we're going to see in the movie, but it shows the kinds of students that are in high school. And what I think is super interesting about this uh, montage is it almost doesn't show any faces. Like there are a few faces at the beginning and a few faces at the end, but most of the sequence is shot just like of the lower bodies of teenagers and maybe or maybe their torso down, showing the kinds of clothes they wear, showing their shoes, showing the little gestures they make. Um, there's a shot of somebody's jean jacket with all these cool pins on it. There's a shot of a girl drawing a heart on her knee in the place where there's a hole in her jeans. It's like, I remember drawing things on my knees. I remember having pins. Like, were there any of these little pieces that, like, stood out to you? The scene where the the kid's, like, opening up the locker and, like, all of the stuff falls out. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, my God, having a locker. Like, oh, what a weird concept yeah. that was. But it felt so... <laughs> Uh, important at the time like oh your locker was like this like representation of like you <laughs> yeah and then they play that one for comedy yeah because they're showing him trying yeah. to get in the locker he can't which every high school student can relate to that like the time that you can't open your locker and then I could relate to having the messy locker where everything falls on you it wasn't right. as bad as that guy but I had stuff fall on me before <laughs> anyway and then something that's kind of been iconic from this uh, scene, too, is like there's a shot of these teenagers and they have their hands. They're a couple and they have their hands in each other's back pockets. And that is like specifically referenced into All the Boys I Loved Before, which is the Netflix movie, which we're going to cover later on in our series. So like, there's a lot of little pieces here. OK, so we're getting into the high school now and we start out with um, Samantha and Randy are talking about her 16th birthday and what she kind of envisioned for it. So Sam's basically telling Randy, since I was about 12, I've been looking forward to my sweet 16. You know, a big party and a band with, and they both say tons of people. And then Randy says, and a pink Trans Am in the driveway with a ribbon around it and some incredibly gorgeous guy that you meet in like France and you do it on a cloud without getting pregnant or herpes. I'm like, oh my God. 
<laughs> that part at the end, when I was a kid, I was like, pregnant or herpes? I was like studying <laughs> up this information about sex. I also remember though, like just like hearing the word do it, like was like very dirty to me when I was a kid. I was like, oh, they said do it. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Yep. So we now come to uh, a, the study hall scene. And this is where we're introduced to Jake Ryan is in the scene. Sam is like, has this like piece of notebook paper with like a survey on it about her sex life. Right. And um, the questions on it are like, have you ever touched it? Have you ever done it? And then um, would you do it if you could? And with who? And she's filling this out. And right before she like fills out the part about who would she do it with? She looks back at Jake, who's in her study hall and he sees her looking at him. And then she's like totally mortified. She writes his name down and then she like passes the note over her shoulder, supposedly to her friend Randy, but it misses her desk and Jake Ryan nudges the note over to him. And so we know in this scene, the important thing in this scene is to establish that Jake knows that Samantha wants to have sex with him. So woof, that's a lot. <laughs> yes, it is a lot. And she doesn't know that Jake's found the note. So she, but she does know that the note is not with Randy. So she's like, oh shit. Like, right, right. Yeah. And I just want to, I want to give now a shout out really quick to what Jake looks like in this movie, because this is like not a look that would be common today. He's like very like formal looking compared to most high school students. Now he's got like a button down shirt and then he's got this like sweater vest over it. He has these jeans that are like really well fitting and he has like this brown pair of like ankle boots. He looks like a GQ model, essentially, yeah. like that yes. he was. Yes. And he has like this like dark brown hair, like chiseled looks. He looks, I think he was 23 at the time. He looks like he's 23. Yeah. So when you have Molly Ringwald and Anthony Michael Hall, who are like actual teenagers, like 15 or 16, compared to this guy, it's like, okay, you see how he is made the aspirational senior figure. In right. The film. Yes. Yeah. I found him very attractive looking. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Even to this day, I'm like, wow, they, they really cast him well. <laughs> but there's not much to him, like, in terms of his personality, really. And really, there's not a ton to a lot of these people of their personality. You know what I mean? Yeah. I feel yeah. like. And you're not really sure why Samantha, like, likes him. Is it just because he's good looking? Because it's like, you're not really sure, like, because they don't, they've never had any interactions or is it just that allure of him being like the popular good looking guy? You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. which, which is a big thing, which is, you know, which is true and fine. You know, a lot of relationships are based on that, you know, <laughs> like you don't know, you don't know anything else about them. So, yeah. He has kind of soulful eyes. I'll give him that. Like, yeah. so like that kind of adds to his allure, but yeah. I, I don't know. Like all most of the people's crushes in this movie just seem like projections of like what people think someone's going to be like based on what they look like. So, yeah. All right. Um, we come to a next scene. Jake has the note and he's with his um friend who looks like he's fucking 30 years old. Right. Yes. That was so jarring. Like this time around watching it. I was like, wait, wait, what? I was like, is this his gym teacher? <laughs> like, who is this guy? And he's doing like chin-ups with because that person is not nowhere near high school age like nowhere near yeah anyway jake's like asking him what he thinks about sam and the guy says it's nothing she's void like she's not she just doesn't exist to him um but jake says it's kind of cool the way she's always looking at me she looks at me like she's in love with me so it seems like jake is interested in samantha because she is interested in him right exactly 
which is again it's sort of questionable because it just makes him seem a little more vapid but sometimes that's how things play out you know what i mean yeah. like that is how you become you're like oh they're interested in me well i yeah, yeah. like it, it makes you notice them more so um this this again feels true true to life well to be honest i prefer a guy who like is interested in you when you're interested in him to a guy who like as soon as you're interested in him he runs away <laughs> exactly yes <laughs> which yes. is a type which is a definite yes type. so yes. yeah so yeah, she's already like piqued his interest. So he's interested. So we have this like really brief locker room scene. And the main point of the scene is to introduce Caroline, who is Jake's girlfriend. And um, the 30 year old gym teacher guy says, you've got Caroline. Now she's a woman. And then we hear a boing noise and we <laughs> see her breasts. So like we're literally introduced to this character by seeing her breasts with a boing noise. <laughs> yep <laughs> yeah and that's the point where we know this was written by a dude right yeah, yes exactly this is not actually Haviland morris's body by the way she had a body double for the scene um but yeah we see her face in the scene and uh samantha and randy are looking at her in the shower and just like samantha's kind of despairing that she's so beautiful and she's also nice and like how could she ever compete with this girl Okay, so before we go on, like an interesting thing this movie turns on is the idea of turning 16. And we already saw in like the earlier scene where she's thinking that, you know, she would maybe feel different when she was 16. Maybe she wouldn't be transformed, but like something would change. And like there's kind of a mythos around a 16 year old girl in our society. And there's kind of like two places where you see this show up. Like on the one hand, like the idea of the sweet 16 party. And on the other hand, a bunch of these like songs about 16 year old girls, which the title 16 Candles is actually taken from one of those songs about 16 year old girls. So like, was this something that was in your mind when you were growing up? Did 16 have like this, like a lure for you or this, like, did you think it was going to be something different? Um, it is a big deal because it is when you get your license and then that equals like more freedom I mean, that's what I associated it with, but I, I never really like, I, I didn't have a sweet 16 party. I don't even remember going to any like sweet 16 parties. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, it wasn't really like a thing. I was way more excited to turn 18 than yeah. to be, to then to be 16. So, like, were you familiar with any of these songs about 16-year-olds? Because I was, because my dad listened to the oldies channel. Was that something that was kind of in your radar at all? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I Yeah, I knew all those songs. Like, uh, the 16 Candles song. It, it does seem to be more of, like, a past thing where 16 was, like, a bigger deal. Maybe, like, the 60s. Well, definitely, like, the, the songs was definitely a thing that was more from the past. Like, I was trying to try to figure out, like, when did 16 become this thing? When did the phrase sweet 16 become a thing? And the farthest thing back that I could date it to, there's a song called When You Were Sweet 16 from 1898. It was written by James Thornton. And um, it was a very popular recording in 1900. The interesting thing about this song is it isn't written um, about a 16-year-old girl. It's written to an older woman by their lover and the person's telling them or their husband probably telling them, I love you just as much as I did when you were sweet 16. Like, so it's kind of a song about like, I still love you. You're old, but like, I remember when you were that age and I still love you that much. You know what I mean? I still love okay. you that much. Yeah. Okay. That's so that was like a totally different 
Yeah, that was a totally different point of view. It makes me think that the phrase sweet 16 must have already been a thing, though, to, make, to write this song around it. But maybe the guy invented it. I don't know. There's very little information about this on the Internet. You'd be surprised. So that song, When You Were Sweet 16, got recorded by Perry Como in 1947. And then 16 Candles by The Crests was from 1959. And the credits for this movie use a cover of that song by The Stray Cats. So these are some of the lyrics from 16 Candles. 16 candles make a lovely light, but not as bright as your eyes tonight. Blow out the candles, make your wish come true, for I'll be wishing that you love me too. You're only 16, but you're my teenage queen. You're the prettiest, loveliest girl I've seen. So, the, but those are the lyrics for that one. Okay, those are the lyrics for that one. There's some other songs about being 16, though, like around the similar time that are kind of creepy. So, You're 16 by Johnny Burnett from 1960. Ooh, you come on like a dream, peaches and cream, lips like strawberry wine. You're 16, you're beautiful, and you're mine. You're all ribbons and curls. Oh, what a girl. Eyes that twinkle and shine. You get the picture, right? Yeah. <laughs> Creepy. <laughs> yeah, like that song. I vividly remember hearing that song a lot on the oldie station when we go on trips. And it, it, like, I think it affected my view of like what you were as a teenage girl. Like you weren't just you. You weren't just like a person. You were also this object to men. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And I also felt like there was some expectation that a 16 year old girl was supposed to be like peaches and cream and lovely and all this other crap like that. Right. This right. was kind of like um, accentuated more by stuff like the movie Sleeping Beauty, where she's 16 and she looks like ridiculous with her big breasts and her tiny waist and everything. And and also like 16 going on 17 from Sound of Music. Like this was all in my mind. Like so this age was like to me like, oh, my God. And I think 16 Candles was like ex ex exacerbated that on some level, right? Mm -hmm. Because like she, it's a romantic movie. But on the other hand, it kind of comforted me. Like here's this character, Samantha, and she also doesn't feel like she fits in with this age that she's supposed to be. Yeah. It is sort of interesting um, like where, yeah, why 16 is like an important age. And and some of the stuff that you wrote about it being like the the poor man's debutante you know like the sweet 16 party or like maybe that's the age where you were like dateable i would yeah guess. where you were yeah so that relates to two things like when you say the poor man's debutante like the poor man's like coming out party like rich people would have a coming out party where they a woman would go into society and right. interestingly the age of the age of consent is actually still 16 in most states in the united states like today even and certainly uh -huh. in the 1980s so mm -hmm. like, I mean, sometimes there'll be a graduated thing where it's only like two years, you know, somebody can only be two years older than you or something, but like still. Yeah. So yeah, I think there's definitely that association with your dateable, you know, or marriageable even at that age. Yeah. That somehow you're, you're, you're ready. You're grown up. You're, mm -hmm. <laughs> you're a woman now, sort of. Yeah. Oh yes. Speaking of that, happy birthday, sweet 16 by Neil Sadaka from 1961 lyrics Tonight's the night I've waited for, because you're not a baby anymore. You've turned into the prettiest girl I've ever seen. Happy birthday, sweet 16. Oh, God. Puke. Ugh. <laughs> 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 yeah, it's, that's creepy. It's so creepy. 
Yeah, this is the cultural background, though, which John Hughes is coming from, right? Uh, yeah, so, like, this is absolutely. probably in his mind. In, absolutely. In some sense. Yeah, that this is like, oh, this is when you're ready to like have a boyfriend, start dating, start having sex. Which, in some ways, I guess, is is a pretty reasonable age. Like, I mean, yeah. I remember, like, you, like, waiting till 16 was, like, I, most people were having sex in middle school, you know, and in my memory. I mean, I know they were doing some things. A lot of kids did some things in middle school. But, yeah, I do feel like 16 was a normal age when we were growing up, though. I do yeah. feel like that is true. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So it, it it does seem right, but there is sort of like a creepiness to it. It's creepy because it's usually these songs are sung by like older dudes and like they sound older, right? Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like, have you been waiting? Okay, like, yeah. go away, please. <laughs> and you also don't hear a lot of like point. I guess this is why this movie is special is that you don't you don't necessarily hear the viewpoint of what the girl is thinking at mm-hmm. 16 like is she thinking like oh now i'm ready to bone you you know <laughs> like <laughs> maybe maybe she is you know but we don't really have that like perspective so yeah exactly like that i think is exactly why this movie is so meaningful to still so many people still and why even though it's got these problematic elements i still think there's something of value there is yeah it's turning it around and being like well what is she thinking what is it really like to turn 16 as a girl right yeah. And just like a few more things. I couldn't find the origin of the Sweet 16 birthday party either, but I did find this really, oh, this article is hilarious, which I'll link to it in the show notes. The 1978 New York Times article uh, said, the Sweet 16 party, relatively dormant during the anti-establishment turmoil of the late 60s and early 70s, is becoming popular again as a way of marking the 16th birthday. So that suggests that these parties went back at least to like, the pre-60s era, right? Like maybe the 1950s or something, which I found interesting. And if you want to read that article, you can hear some really corny descriptions of like late 70s girls disco sweet 16 parties. (laughs) Sounds ideal. It's actually, it's pretty awesome, actually, to be honest. But this phenomenon, even though you and I didn't experience it, clearly it's still something that people do because they had that MTV reality show, like my super sweet 16 Right. And that, yeah, which I never really watched, but it it was during the 2000s, basically, right? Like it was going on for a number of years. I feel like it might have even come out when I was in high school because, but I also remember it, it it was just over the top and like ridiculous. And you were like, who, who are these people? Because it, it seemed insane that you know, they were getting these crazy cars and like, it was almost like a wedding. Like they were, it was like, they were spending just <laughs> as much money on these 16 sweet 16 parties as you would like on a wedding. And that's what they felt like, you know, they're catered and there's bands and, you know, totally nuts. But yeah, yeah. it's a thing. It's a thing in our society. So um, it, it's ironic now because I almost feel like, like we talked about on the sweet 16 was kind of like the poor man's debutante ball or coming out. Whereas Whereas now I almost feel like it is like the richer person's like, yeah. like extravagant thing to have a sweet 16 party, you know, because yes, I don't really feel like middle class people are really doing that anymore or making it so elaborate, you know? Yeah, certainly not that. Yeah, certainly not that. And yeah, I think that show was aimed more at showing the excesses of the rich, which is something Americans seem to like to watch. <laughs> yeah, totally. 
Okay, so we're gonna now go on to the bus home from high school. This, like, when I, I rewatched this this morning just to verify something, I don't think there's a single other girl on the bus besides Sam, her friend Randy, and Joan Cusack's character. <laughs> Correct. Yes, I don't think so either. Which could be could be true. Like little little dudes. Uh, my bus was not like that. This bus is like all like weird, crazy, nerdy guys. Like I don't even think we had that many nerds at my high school. They're like shipping nerds in from other schools to fill this bus. <laughs> uh huh. Or maybe it's just like a, an exaggeration of what like underclassmen were like, as opposed to like the ideal of the senior Jake Ryan or or those yeah. like friends. And I do think there is that the disparity. Like I do, like I do think that I do remember like that that transition from riding a bus, taking the bus to driving or getting driven by your friends, and how yeah. huge that was, and how how much you like despise the bus or having to take the <laughs> yes. bus after a certain point. Like you were like, Oh my God, like this is so awful. Yeah. Yes. This goes, I would, I, the, the line that I quoted the most from this movie over the years was Molly Ringwald saying, I loathe the bus. There has to be a more dignified mode of transportation. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah, she's looking all fashionable with her, like, skirt and her hat and her off-the-shoulder sweatshirt. And, like, she sits down with Randy and they're looking like they're just above it all. And then these, like, again, these comic nerds, these over-the-top nerds who have, like, jock straps on their head. Like, who, who would do that? <laughs> I like, don't know. Shoot at, I was... Yeah, they shoot at them with ray guns and say, a direct hit. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know, man. <laughs> John, John Hughes did like his over-the-top nerds. Yes, for sure. But this scene is really about the character called The Geek by Anthony Michael Hall and um, Samantha being harassed by him. So once Randy, her friend, gets off the bus, it's just her, Joan Cusack, and um, Anthony Michael Hall. Joan Cusack's sitting across the aisle from her. And Joan Cusack's whole thing in this movie is she's wearing one of those back braces for scoliosis that people mostly don't have to wear that kind anymore, I don't think. But it makes your movement really impaired. Yeah, Joan Cusack, in, by the way, in this movie is amazing. I love her character, even though she barely <laughs> has anything to do. Yes, you see, she pops up like a few times. Quite, <laughs> yeah. quite a few times. Yeah. And it's worth watching this scene and just watching her in the scene and just listening to them and then watching her reactions like it really <laughs> is. What Ted does is he comes up and as soon as Samantha says even one word to him, even though she's not interested in him, he comes and sits down next to her and, and pushes her into the window of her seat and then puts his arm around her. And like, when I was growing up, I never liked this scene. Like, I never liked his character. Mm -hmm. But like, this time I was like, really like, just like, oh, do I have to watch this bullshit? Right, because it's such an obvious, like, sexual harassment at this point. Now, now we have a word for it. Now we know mm -hmm. that that is, like, wrong. Or, like, we, sh you know, as a woman, you shouldn't have to deal with that. But at this time, this was normal, you know? And, and even later on, you know, I mean, it is until somewhat recently, where, like, women just and girls just, I don't know, took it you know, accepted it as yeah. like sort of normal behavior, even though she is very assertive in this scene and is like, get off me. And she pushes him off and she's disgusted. But even just the idea that he had the audacity to like touch her is like, jarring. Yeah. it's jarring at this point. You're like, Oh my God. Like he put his hands on her. You know what I mean? Like wh where's the, yeah, he doesn't like, 
where's the school bus driver? You know, <laughs> like, yeah, well, the, the bus driver probably wouldn't have done a damn thing about it back then. That's the right. thing. Like you said, exactly. it wasn't like acknowledged. It wasn't exactly. recognized. Like, like he doesn't like touch her, like grope her in this scene, but he does like push her down to try to talk to her, to keep talking to her, even though it's yeah. her stop. Like, yeah. And like, he also fucking sniffs her. He yes. like sniffs her. Yes. And I know that you're supposed to like not find him threatening. You know what I mean? Like there's something like, oh, non-threatening about him, but, but that still doesn't make it okay. You know? And so, yeah, yeah it is strange to watch it like through your 2023 eyes yeah it's it's i i didn't like it back then either because like i just always found him creepy and like he keeps trying like i don't have a problem with a guy like coming on to you like once or trying to talk to you once right gauging your interest but she like clearly expresses she's not interested in him she even calls him like the f slur she like tells him she's gonna have guys beat him up and he still keeps talking to him and then like when she gets off the bus and she said all these mean, insulting things to him. He asks her, am I turning you on? Right. I'm like, are- I think that's another part that is sort of weird about this character is that he's he's very sexually aggressive. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, it's not just like, oh, like, you're the pretty girl and I want to talk to you. It's like, there seems to be this, like, very distinct motivation that he's trying to have mm-hmm. sex, which is yeah. like, oh, yeah, oh. weird. Like, I, I, I almost feel like that was almost poorly written in a way like i almost can't even really believe that this type of person would maybe that's what they would be thinking in their mind but would be that overtly yeah sexual like clearly i feel like this is written for comedy clearly i feel like we're supposed to find this funny that this guy's getting rejected over and over again like he's like over the top character but i feel like john hughes expected his audiences and maybe some of his audience did relate to him this way as like an everyman who's doing his best to try to get a girl you know what i mean right and and maybe that's where we're wrong because maybe this is true to life maybe this is what <laughs> those like nerdy quote unquote guys are like you know the whole thing about like the the nice guy like mm-hmm. the nice guy appeal where they're actually really not that nice you know like <laughs> it's just a ploy to like get get something from you yeah well, anyway I, I this i i i pretty much like don't like any of these scenes i never really they were never the part i liked it for and i was kind of a nerd like right like i was probably right. at the level of like anthony michael hall's character but i wasn't like right. going up to like dudes and like sniffing them so right <laughs> like somehow, Unlike, somehow i restrained myself in, in to compare in comparison which is why i think the breakfast club is such a better movie like again in the breakfast club anthony michael hall is playing a nerd mm-hmm. or a geek but it, it's so different you know like there it's mm-hmm. so differently played yeah that, that i don't know yeah i just feel like this character was I don't know, mis miswritten somehow. And that John Hughes ended up perfecting it later on, like that nerd character with a little bit more like sensitivity and a little bit more flushed out as opposed just yeah. to being this sort of like horn dog, I guess. But of course, like in Breakfast Club, they make John or Judd Nelson becomes like the sexual harasser in that one. So right. yes. he still he still yes. wrote that character in. Yes. Yes. <laughs> But oh, that man. but that seems more probable. You know what I mean? Like that yeah, seems to make yeah. more sense. Whereas with Michael Anthony Hall's character, it's like I don't know. It's I don't it doesn't seem to make as much sense. Yeah, I get you. I get you. Yeah. That he that he's that confident, I guess, mm-hmm. to to be that 
assertive. I don't know. Anyways. Yeah. Okay. So we get back to the family home. We get back to the family home now. And Samantha's continuing to have like kind of a shitty day. The main point of being back at home is we are introduced to her crazy family. Yeah. The grandparents and long duck dong who came with one set of the grandparents. Uh, What did you make of this section? True to life. Obviously there was a little, some questionable scenes like the grandparents, like the booby scene with the grandparents was weird, but I, but also like, I think true to life, like, especially like at that, in that time frame, like there, oh yeah, people, we do have creepy family members that for some reason think that they have like physical access to you. You know what I mean? Oh, especially yeah. in that time yes. frame. And, and it, it's get it's only getting addressed now where it's like, now people are saying like, oh, children have the right to be like, no, I don't want to hug and kiss you or no, I, I, I don't want to be touched in any sort of way, you know, to have autonomy over your body. But at the time mm-hmm. you didn't, and in up until I guess somewhat recently you did it you were expected to like no you have to like hug and kiss all of these family members that you barely know and barely see and like you know it it, it is a little looking it isn't creepy because that was so normalized but now we see it as being creepy yeah the, the grandma feeling her up is definitely a exaggerated gay like I don't think most yes. people have had a grandma like touch their breast to see how much they've grown but the grandpa of that pair hundred percent accurate. Okay. Like, <laughs> uh-huh. okay. I love my grandparents, but like one of my grandpas definitely like, I don't know if he just saw me as being younger and didn't notice that I'd grown up and it was uncomfortable for me, but he would still like pat our butts and stuff. And I like, just did not like it. It would like, I, I did not like it, but you're, he's your grandpa. And at that time you're supposed to be like, okay, just let your grandparents touch you. I don't think he was trying to be molesty at all. Like I'll, I'll make that clear, but like, right. it didn't feel good to me. And I didn't feel like I had the right to say, please don't do that. Yes. Yes. Exactly. And now that narrative is changing, which is, which is nice. And then we have the other set of grandparents who are the ones who brought Long Duck Dong with them. And they are like the, the most stereotypical, really old grandparents who have like a million physical ailments that they want to tell you about and are wearing these really old people clothes and like great actors playing them. But like, yeah. (laughs) Okay, and then after Samantha gets fueled up by her grandma, she's like retreating. So she's gotten kicked out of her room by her grandparents who are sleeping there. She goes to another room. I think it's her brother's room where she thinks she's going to be able to sleep. And all of a sudden, like, Long Duck Dong shows up, like, over the side of the bunk bed with a gong noise, of course. We have to have a gong noise. And says, what's happening, hot stuff? Which is, like, one of the most quoted lines from this movie, really. So, like, Samantha goes downstairs after encountering Long Duck Dong tells her mom that he's there and then we find out who he is. Um, And then her mom and her have a little brief conversation where it's established the mom still doesn't remember her birthday. Her mom asks if she can remember to do a chore. She goes to her mom, I can remember lots of things, (laughs) which is my second most quoted line from this movie. And then my other favorite part of the scene is when she's asking where she's supposed to sleep. Her brother says, Sofa City, sweetheart. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a pretty good one. My brother was really nice, so I didn't have a brother like this, but like definitely the jerk brother character rings true to me. Yeah. Okay, so let's um let's dig into Long Duck Dong played by Gede Watanabe really quick. 
First thing I want to do is play just a clip of some of like, this is a clip somebody put together on YouTube of just some of the instances of how he's portrayed in the movie. And you'll hear like that there's like sound effects that get associated with him, which I think it's like an important layer to add to the discussion. Like this isn't just Gede Watanabe's performance. Things were done in post-production to change the flavor of it. So let's put that on. What's happening, hot stuff? His name is Long Duck Dong. What? Long Duck Dong. It's in Long Duck Dong. Who? Oh, the weird Chinese guy in Mike's room. This is the single worst day of my entire life. The hell are you bitching about? I'm gonna sleep under some Chinaman named after a duck stork. Would you like to go to the dance with Sam? Listen, uh, I want to thank you for uh, loaning me the donger. He's really bitching. Yeah, so that's just like a sampling of like kind of the way the character is treated. The gong sound, I think, is like one of the things that like brings it to the level of the stereotype. But it's weird because it also works as like a comic thing. And Hughes is putting these sound effects throughout the whole movie, like the boing or whatever, like stuff like that is happening. Yeah, I don't I don't even know how to open this discussion because it's such a vast discussion. But do you have any initial thoughts? It is so weird, too. Like, how, why is that gong like a representation of, I guess, Asian peoples? Like, do you associate that sound with? The gong is actually like a traditional instrument in like, so I looked this up because okay. I just okay. didn't verify yeah, no, it. But the yeah. gong... The gong is actually a traditional instrument that's often associated with East Asia. So yeah, this brings okay. us really quick. Um, okay. I want to do say, I do want to say though, like the, John Hughes had no idea what country this guy was from. He didn't put it in the script. It was not said where he was from. He was just Asian. They keep calling him Chinese, but I don't trust these people to know what country this guy's from, to be <laughs> honest. I'm not right. taking their fucking word for it um, right. because it's played by a Jap- Japanese American actor, Gede Watanabe. He based his accent off of a Korean-American friend. And then the name Long Duck Dong, like I tried to look up parts of the name and see if they were names in like any Asian tradition. And what I could find was that like, like it was an amalgamation of a Korean, a Chinese and a Southeast Asian name, not really very common ones, but you could maybe argue that it was that. That's three different fucking countries, right? Right. And then also there's references made to Japanese culture several times. He goes, he says bonsai at one point and the song turning Japanese is playing at one point when he's on screen. So it's just like, like there was no care whatsoever put into like what country he's from. He's just a stereotype. He's meant to be like every Asian exchange student that could exist. Right. 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 So it's the fact that Gede Watanabe played this character to be like one of the most popular characters, one of the most remembered characters one of the most quoted characters is kind of like more of a tribute to him than to anything like um why because because he was like also in on the joke like he also like understood i know th- because i i feel because he made him fun he made him like not somebody he made him like less of something to an object and more of a subject if you know what i mean okay like yeah. uh-huh like he like so for example like like even roger ebert like said at the time he elevates his role from a potentially offensive stereotype to high comedy. And Watanabe said of the role, my, my teachers, he's talking about his acting teachers. My teachers had taught me that getting a character is about going for the intention. 
Vadonger loved everything about America, the fun, the girls, the cars. So I didn't so much go for the jokes, but played to his excitement and enthusiasm. Like, that's the thing. Like, I feel like Gede Watanabe tried to shape this kind of stereotype character, this joke, right? Right. Into a full person. The, the results of his acting, I think, show up in that sense. Would I want to recommend this movie to my um, Korean students when I was teaching over in Korea? 100% not. I feel like it doesn't reflect well on what John Hughes felt about Asian people, about what most Americans felt about Asian people at the time. But um, do I think he did the best he could with the role? Yes. And like, does it somehow end up being sometimes funny in spite of everything? Yes. Especially a, a scene that we'll talk about in the spoiler section, which I think is like m one of my favorite scenes. But, but that's a spoiler, so I don't want to talk about it right now. It, it is interesting, um, like the whole concept of it. I think I found it very interesting, too, that that he is American, right? So I don't think if you were to take an actual, um, like a person from, I, we don't even know where he's supposed to be from, which is so yeah. funny. If you took someone from China or Japan and then put them in that role, I don't think that they would have been able to hit it as well as he did because he understood the american stereotypes you know what i mean yes. and i think he like yeah. rose above that and that's why his character is so good because he understood like like i said like he was also in on the joke you know what i mean like or whatever that joke was like so he understood those stereotypes and then was able to like play around them does that make sense you know what i, I mean I, yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's a hundred percent right. I think that's a very good observation. Um, I also think like, okay, and this is like going away from this a little bit for a minute. I think there is something inherently funny about an exchange student or being on an exchange. Like I was an exchange student to Japan in high school. Um, of course I lived in Korea for a number of years. So there can be really funny things in cross-cultural interactions. Like not every joke in this movie, I think, is offensive. Some of them hit things exactly right. Like we're going to play a clip in a minute from the dinner scene. And I think like there's a couple jokes in there that I'm like, yep, I've been there. I've been on both sides of that. I've been the person who didn't understand. And I've been around um, people who didn't understand English well. So like th that cross-cultural vibe can have like a real potential for humor without bringing it to a level of being offensive too. And they've tried to have exchange student characters then in later teen movies. It seems like though they've more gone to like sex pot European girl, you know, exchange students, right? Right, like an Amer American pie, yeah. Yeah, which is another way of devaluing um, a person from another country, by the way. We, we don't really think of it that way, but like it kind of is. Like we oh, have these absolutely. girls who would just exist. Yeah, we have these girls who just exist as sexual objects in this case. And then we had the European, the very unrealistic European exchange student. <laughs> Can't hardly wait. But Gede Watanabe's Long Duck Dong remi remains like the most recognizable exchange student character in a high school movie to this day. I can only think of like Fez from like that '70s show. Like, oh, was, that's true. Okay, was that's a contender. Was he an exchange student? I think that was the point of his character, and his his character was also um, culturally ambiguous. Like, they they mm -hmm. never really did say, but that was part of the joke is that no one yeah. knew where he was from because you know people from the Midwest don't care. <laughs> I know that's horrible, but you know what I mean? Like I do, I do think that um, there is something to say about American culture where we, we do put everyone in a K 
category. You know what I mean? In very, very limited categories and then just think that we're we're right somehow <laughs> you know? yeah. like, like to, to a lot of people like asian is one kind of people africa is a country you know what i'm saying exactly it's yeah. like it's like yeah. so in a way like i don't think john hughes wrote it this way or intended it this way but this movie in some ways you could flip it on its head and like see the humor as this is how stupid white people are that this is what they think this character is you know yes. what i mean yes Exactly. Like these white people are hearing a gong in their head every time they hear this name. These white people are exoticizing this guy at dinner where they have the Asian music playing under the normal dinner scene or whatever. Like, yeah, it's 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 wild. Like, that's how I choose to view it now, actually, like because I love his performance so much that I want to kind of reclaim it in a sense. Like, yeah, be like, I'm just going to watch this and laugh at how stupid white people are in the 80s about Asian people and today to some extent, because when I went to live in Korea, I had people ask me, which career are you going to? They had like no knowledge at all. <laughs> like nothing. Right, right. And I think, yeah, like you said, to this day, I think a lot of people don't have a lot of knowledge about the different cultures that are in Asia or the rest of the world, you know? So it's, yeah, it, it is definitely something that Americans are lacking. And then it's reflected in our entertainment, you know, just how, just how ignorant, we can be yeah so what let's see one thing i wanted to like um highlight some of the criticism so like a, there has been a lot of criticism of course of this character um coming a lot of it from asian americans and um i'm gonna have put a couple articles in the show notes that you can look at in more length if people are interested so one was from npr's code switch this is a quote from Kat chow she says asian men have been fighting this on-screen stereotype for years the socially inept mute, the lecherous but sexually inept loser, one part harmless Charlie Chan, one part mustachioed villain Fu Manchu. She also talks about how there's a scene where like um, Gede Watanabe's character is riding on top of his girlfriend that he's made on an exercise bike. And they're talking about how it makes him look weak or feminine because usually the man would be on the bottom and the woman would be on the top, right? She quotes from this book, Asian Americans in the Media, quote, while this representation aims to provide comic relief, it both feminizes Asian American men and simultaneously constructs alternative gender and sexuality as aberrant. A really famous criticism of Wong Duck Dong is from the um, graphic novelist Adrian Tomina, and he wrote a comic called The Donger and Me, which I'll also link in the show notes. And it's about how he was taunted in school based on this character. And he came to hate the actor Gede Watanabe because of it, because people would like quote lines of that of his at school to him because he was the Asian kid. And finally, he had a chance to interview him then down the line. He came to like Gede Watanabe, but then he went home and he watched Booty Call, which he was in, and he became exasperated again because he played a different <laughs> stereotype in that movie. So that's a really interesting uh, comic, I thought. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of the criticism of this character comes from the fact that like, this is what Asian American students dealt with after this movie became popular, after this character became popular. They, because white people were, you know, stereotyping them, like before that it had been maybe Bruce Lee. And then all of a sudden Long Duck Dong was the most no notable character. And so that's what they all got called and associated with. And I can understand how that would be like an immensely um, painful or hurtful thing to happen to you in school to be right. associated with this character who's kind of a joke in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, this is like a totally, this is a heavy, heavy subject 
that we're even recently we've been having this open discussion about how Asian Americans are portrayed in the media and in entertainment. You know, it's only recently where there seems to have been this like renaissance, you know, of movies with more Asian actors in Mm -hmm. non-stereotypical roles, you know? Yeah, I think so much of the reason this character is problematic for people is because there weren't normal Asian characters, right? Like, not every Black kid at school is getting called Urkel because there were other Black characters in other movies. that they right. And unless they looked sort of like Urkel, they probably weren't going to be called Urkel. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. But, like, yeah, a lot of kids would be called Long Duck Dong just because, like, oh, you're from the same vague area of the world? Sure. Your ancestors were from there? Sure. That's what you are now. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I can totally understand why people like hate this movie even um, for that reason. Like, I, it doesn't hit me in the same way. But again, I would be very cautious about ever recommending this to someone um, from an Asian American background or from even like just another country, like an Asian country. I actually don't know. Like in some ways, like I think the people I knew in Korea were less bothered by these stereotypes because they were the majority in their own country. Do you know yes. what I mean? They didn't have yes. an experience of getting that racism based on being Korean because they were all Korean. Exactly. So just a little more information about the character of Long Duck Dong. Apparently there were some scenes that originally were in the movie that got cut out, including a scene where he raps at the school dance and everybody really gets into it. And Watanabe says he really wishes that scene had been left in. I wonder if that scene would have like changed people's perceptions. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually, I'd love to, I wish we could see that scene like that. Yeah. Yeah, what was left on the editing floor? Like it was the it was the the editors that actually changed this character. Oh yeah, and the post production. Like I said, these fucking gongs and the music choices. Like they'll. I yes. mean, it heightens the comedy on one level. On another level, it heightens the offensiveness. So it's just like right. I I don't know. Like it's really complicated. Oh, I one thing I love about Long Duck Dong. Like this is okay. This is kind of a spoiler, but it's not too much of a spoiler. There's a scene later in the movie where he totally defies the grandparents. Like the grandparents are treating him like this meek, obedient kind of guy. And like the scene where he defies them is like maybe my favorite scene in the movie because it is a youth rising up scene. It is someone saying, I'm not the stereotype you think I am. And I think that is a moment where the character transcends the stereotype to become, look at me, I'm foiling your stereotype of like a quiet Asian guy. I'm foiling your stereotype as somebody who's going to be obedient to you. Like Mm -hmm. I'm my own person. And I'm going to disobey the rules just as much as every other teenage character in this movie did. Mm-hmm. I'm going to play a clip, though, of the dinner scene. And this is like the big introduction to Long Duck Dong. This also has the way the white people around him are reacting to him. Clever dinner. Appetizing food fitting neatly into interesting uh, round pie. It's a quiche. Mm. How do you spell? Well, you don't spell it, son. You eat it. (laughs) (laughs) Dong has only been in our country a short time, Fred. I think we could all help him assimilate. Oh. (laughs) Long Duck Dong is about your age, Sam. You two should have a lot to chat about. 
I love visiting with the grandma and the grandpa and writing letters to parents and <clears throat> pushing lawn mowing machine so grandpa's hyena don't get disturbed. Hernia! Oh, <laughs> oh yes, 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 indeedy he, he does the dishes and helps with the laundry, you betcha. <laughs> May I be excused? Where are you going? I have a dance to go to at school. It's a very important dance. Uh, we're being graded on it for Jim. Wait a minute. I have a wonderful idea. Would you like to go to the dance with Sam? Yeah, that, that gong is just so ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, yeah. I feel like it's overused. I feel like it yeah. did it like the one time. Okay, fine. But every single time it's like, oh my God. I think you need to do it like at least three times for any comic effect though. If you'd done it once, it would seem out of place too. You know what I mean? Okay. So it's like you have it or you don't have it, I think at yeah. that point. But um, I, I do love the line from this scene. You don't spell it, son. You eat it. I swear to God, every single time I make a quiche, I think of that. It's <laughs> funny. It's weird though to me, like, the Grandpa Fred is supposed to be the bad one because he says, you don't spell it, son, you eat it. But I think he's the most natural guy in the scene. Right, I think he's the right. one treating Long Duck Dong like a real guy. Yes, yes, exactly. The other grandparents, it just feels like they're treating him as some kind of like labor force. <laughs> yeah, or maybe like a glorified pet in some way. Like, oh, look yeah. at what we have. So let's see, really quick before we end it, I just wanted to say, like, Watanabe's had kind of an evolving opinion about the character over the years. Like, definitely when it came time to do the um, DVD special features, he was, like, super enthusiastic about it. In the book, um, 2016 book, Brat Pack America, he was interviewed about the character, still was pretty enthusiastic about the role. He said in that book, because there weren't enough Asians on screen, comedy was kind of looked down upon. I was not in the film business. It was my first movie, and I had no idea what I was stepping into. But he wasn't saying he thought the role was bad at that point. He was just trying to say, like, listen, like, don't hate me, basically, at that point. Um, he said he didn't think the movie was mean to his character or singled him out, like, specifically as a stereotype at that time. But, like, more recently, he's been a little more critical of it. And I, I, I don't know if it's, like, his opinions evolved or, like, just because, like, times are changing. But he told an LA TV station, KTLA, in 2022 about the movie. I think it was just a product of its time. I did what I needed to do because of just survival. I just wanted to act. And like, yeah, I can't imagine there was like a huge amount of roles for like an Asian actor at that time. There, like Kate, we saw what happened to Kihi Kwan, right? Like where he went out of the industry because he couldn't find roles and only just came back for everything, everywhere, all at once. So... It's good that things are changing and hopefully, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what else to say about it. Like, I feel really shitty that this movie hurts people and that like um, this character that has made me laugh, like has made other people's lives difficult. Um, at the same time, I really admire Gede Watanabe. I think he's a fine actor and like, I would, yeah, I appreciate his work. So it's a complicated. It's complicated. Exactly. Just like our society. <laughs> Yeah, we could have really had a whole podcast just on this, honestly. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so yeah, we come to some other scenes. We have a scene where Sam talks to her older sister, and her older sister totally dismisses her crush on Jake Ryan. Doesn't want to hear about it. 
She just wants to talk about her own fiance, who she's been together with for six whole months. <laughs> Any thoughts on her character, the character of Ginny? I mean, you said this earlier. She's it, it's a weird character. Like you just don't. I don't know what she's supposed to be like. She's not like a caring older sister and she's not even like that much of like a horrible bitchy older sister. She's just like a very absorbed. Yeah. A very odd character. But yeah, that, that's all I have to say about that. I don't know. Yeah. She's got this weird voice like Sam. She, she always seems like she's on drugs. Like yeah. all the time in this movie, right. basically. Right. Maybe she was. Maybe the actress was. Who knows? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think she was very specifically. I saw her interviews, and I think she was very specifically making an acting choice in this oh, case. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We come to the school dance scene. So we got a couple things going on in the school dance. Sam is looking at Jake and wanting him. The geek is pursuing Sam again, and we have a subplot where Long Duck Dong gets a girlfriend named Marlene, who is taller than him. And when they dance together in a slow dance, his head is resting on her like rather large breasts, which is kind of like the joke there. But like all the same, I'm glad for the tall girl getting a guy. And I'm glad for (laughs) Long Duck Dawn getting a girl. And they generally seem to like each other, you know, for whatever reason. Yes, yes. So in the school dance, anything we want to say here about Sam and Jake? I mean, also point out that there is a scene with Caroline. He's dancing with Caroline and they, they're looking like the ultimate, like hot couple. And that's who Sam is like staring at, like the two of them dancing. Yeah. And they're playing Spandau Ballet's um, True, which is a very iconic rom-com song. Like we also hear that in The Wedding Singer later on. Yes. But yes. Yeah. I love that song. I first... I did first associate it with this movie, though. I had a strong association. So when it came up in The Wedding Singer, and I'm like, oh, callback, kind of. Yeah, exactly. But while she's looking at Caroline and Jake dancing, Jake sees her staring at him, and he, like, gives her a smile. And she just does not know what to do. She kind of runs off. Yeah. I do like how this the movie does do a good job of, of portraying like those little things, like those subtle things that are so important and meaningful. Like, I I don't even want to say to like adolescents, like to anyone, you know what I mean? Just those like little moments of like an acknowledgement from someone you're like, Oh my God, you know? So the, uh, the second plot starts to unfold now though, as soon as she turns away from Jake, fucking Ted is right in front of her farmer, Ted, whatever and like i think the dragnet music plays at this point like dun, 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 like because that's like what announces <laughs> him and the, hor- the horror that is this geek he has told his friends that he's gonna like have sex with her he calls it interface at- to his friends um one of his friends is played by john cusack in one of his first roles the other guy they literally cast him by going to a movie theater and looking for nerdy looking guys <laughs> oh man we missed out we were just a little too <laughs> little too well, we also weren't dudes yeah. they needed a whole bus full of that's nerds true. man we that's true yeah like yeah nerd it boys. is yeah. it is true they do have a lot of nerd boys and you don't really do we see nerd girls i don't know no unless Not you really. count the brett unless you think joan cusack's person with the brace is supposed to be a nerd like yeah, yeah no, i don't really. know she's too cool yeah she's really fucking cool yeah Anyway, anyway, the geek starts like dancing around her once again, completely ignoring her body language. Sam's just like standing there stony faced like she wants to be anywhere but there. 
He's like dancing around her crazily going woo, 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 like that. And then he like fucking like breathes on her neck again. Creepy, creepy, creepy. Yes. He's very creepy. I used to be able to deal with these scenes and like, just be like, whatever. And now they just really bug me. And I'm just like, just stay away from her. It also <laughs> kind of bugs me in a way. Like I know that a lot of women go into kind of like a, a fawn reaction when they're faced with this kind of thing. For me, like, I would definitely fight or flight it. I would be either out of there or I'd be like, get away from me, you asshole. Right, like, which is so what she does, which is what she does. She runs eventually. away. Eventually. Yeah. Yeah. But, like, I really have a hard time when watching people with a fawn reaction in movies. It, it makes me very uncomfortable. I'm like, oh, no, please, please get out of there. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, like, this is all played for comedy. Like, the point that we're supposed to get as the audience, I think, is that his nerd friends are now laughing at him because he didn't succeed. Because you see a whole line of, like, nerdy little boys laughing at uh, Ted for failing. Because Sam ran away. And, let's see, Ted persists, and he now makes a bet with his friends that he's going to get her to have sex with him, and they ask for her underwear as proof. Like, here's the thing. In this scene, I was always like, why don't you literally just go buy some underwear? <laughs> so true. Yes. Like, how do you know that's like really her underwear? It, yeah. There's so many. Yeah. There's so many like questionable elements to this whole, to the whole underwear scene, which we'll go into um, yeah. next. But like, it is so, and it's one of the most memorable, memorable parts. And the one part that you, you see again and again, you know what I mean? Like it shows up, it's like iconic movie moments, you know, like the underwear scene, but it's so icky. It's so fucking icky. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We also now Jake goes and stops Ted and asks her if he knows Samantha. This is his description of Samantha. She has smallish tits, decent voice, Smells pretty good. She drives me crazy. I mean, come on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is not like, um, this, this also bugged me at the time because it's like, this is all that you want from this woman, basically, right? This is all you want yeah. from this girl. Yeah. Anyway, when they were filming this scene, it's important to note that it was 103 degrees in the gym and they couldn't, they didn't have an aircon budget. So they were having to blow dry cast members between scenes, which must have made them even hotter. Right? Oh, my God. <laughs> and um, also, we also, before we get to the next little bit, um, we have the water fountain scene with Joan Cusack, which is epic, where she's like in her back brace and she's trying to use the water fountain to get water. And it keeps getting her in the face because she can't get quite the right angle. And I think some people have said this is like making fun of her for a disability. For me, like I find her totally relatable and I feel like it's showing you how difficult it is to be someone who's dealing with this. What right. do you think? I didn't take it as it being like making fun of her. I just thought it 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 is a comic relief scene, but I... I don't find it offensive, but maybe yeah. some people would. I don't know. I felt it's, like it's, it was more about the vic the vicissitudes of being a teenager and being the type of teenager that has to deal with this back brace and like what that would yeah, be like. And it's just exactly. a little window. Yeah, exactly. There's another scene where Sam's back at the dance sitting with her friends on the bleachers. The geek follows her again. She runs away again. Like how many times does this bitch have to run away from him? Right. <laughs> But no, it's not enough because now we get the least, for me, the least realistic scene in the movie. Sam goes to hide in, the, in a car at the auto shop. Ted somehow finds her 
And then she lets him into the car to sit with her. Would you let this guy into the car to sit with you? No, no, I would yeah. not. <laughs> no, exactly. It makes absolutely no sense. But she tells him it's her birthday. It's like she's been defeated. It's like she's been worn down. She tells him it's her birthday. He starts singing uh, the Beatles song to her, the birthday song. They start to have like a heart to heart discussion. And then all of a sudden, like he lunges on her and tries to like start having sex with her, I guess. Yes. And she pushes him off. She says, it's okay. He lunges at her again. And then she's like, I said it was okay. You did it once. I didn't say you could do it again. And like, they're still talking though at this point. She hasn't gotten out of the car. It's like, I don't even understand. Yeah. Again, it's like, is this just like a, a, a sign of the times? You know what I mean? Is I guess this is just what women and young girls had to deal with. And it was just so normalized. I mean, this was in, this is a very popular movie. And I don't think anyone at the time saw any red flags with this scene, right? Like, I don't, I don't think at the time people were like, oh, that's terrible. There's like, oh, this is just normal. Oh, and, but it's funny. She's pushing him off. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. no one was like, this rapey little kid. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. To me, he just, he seemed like this, like, little annoying dog trying to hump your leg. Like, but like, but like, yeah and like i don't want that like in a human form like and it is it is more of like a comedy thing whereas like now you look at it and you're like that's not funny you know what i mean like that's not funny that's actually horrible and awful and traumatic and what's even more traumatic is that the girl in that scene is expected to just sort of brush it off yeah to just it's like her job to be like no like over and over again without and then it's like yeah, and then it's, like, her job to make him feel better about it, okay? Because I'm going to play a clip. Exactly. And, she, yeah. and she's, like, trying then to, like, make him not feel bad. He, like, because she embarrassed him, I guess, by saying no or by, like, pointing out that, like, he had breath mints in his pocket or something and she thought it was an erection. I don't fucking know. Bad. Anyway, here we, here we are. Here is the, um, here is this scene. You know, I really don't want to hurt your feelings because it's really human to listen to my bullshit. I care about it, really. I mean... I know I came on kind of like a poser on the bus tonight and everything, but that's just so my friends won't think, you know, I'm a jerk. But they're all pretty much jerks, though, aren't they? Yeah, but the thing is, I'm kind of like the leader, you know? Kind of like the king of the dipshits. Well, that's pretty cool. Hey, but a lot can happen over a year. I mean, you could come back next fall as a completely normal person. Yeah. Sure. Would it be totally off the wall if if I asked if I could have sex with you? You know, you asking me is not as off the wall as why I won't. BD? <laughs> no. I'm sort of saving myself. <laughs> it's really stupid. He doesn't even know I exist. Oh. Oh. Jake Ryan. You like Jake? Jake's my boy! I just talked to Jake in the gym. He asked me about you. Did not. He did, too. He did. He asked me what you were like. Oh, my... If you're lying, I'll beat the crap out of you. I'm not lying. Oh, my God, what should I do? 
Should I go up to him or should I say, hi, Jake, I'm Samantha? Or no, maybe I should let him come to me. This is not my department, huh? But what if I decide to let him come to me and then he forgets? Or then what if he changes his mind and then I'm totally screwed, right? Apparently so. What would you do if you were me? I'm a gambling man by nature, and um, I'd go for it. This is so strange, but I think I will. Oh, you're the best. Nope. <laughs> hmm, what the fuck is a poozer? I was like, I don't know. Even the last time I watched that, I was like, poozer? What is that? I've never heard I don't, that. I do not know. I did look up Bohunk for this movie, but that's about it. Yeah. <laughs> Which so Bohunk nice. is an offensive word describing a South East or South Central European person or something. Yeah, so referring to the in-laws in this case. Anyway. Interesting. Um, yeah, so after this exchange she has, they have, then he asks her if he can borrow her underpants. And she says yes. And I want to say my uncle, who was a teenager at the time, did find that unrealistic, even at the time, that she would give her underpants away. And I totally find it unrealistic because it's like the sign that they've had sex. Why would she want all these guys at school to think she had sex with this guy? Exactly. Exactly. Like, it it this is such a plot hole in this movie that it's like and it's such a huge part of the movie and again Mm -hmm. it's also a huge part where i think this is definitely written by a man (laughs) you know like why why is this such a huge plot point is the, the the like the fucking underwear and i mean i guess i understand the like wanting to have sex part because that's a a drive you know that mm-hmm. everyone has especially teenagers but yeah the underwear part just makes no sense yeah so it's not the next scene but let's cut right away to the underpants scene um there's like one of the nerd guys at the door like the one who's not john cusack taking dollars from little boys who want to get into the boys bathroom to see this underwear why would anyone pay a dollar to see underwear anyway I don't know. Yeah. Again, there just seems to be so many plot holes in this scene. And like the underwear is revealed and it's like this like white underwear, just normal white briefs with like, like maybe pink flowers or dots are on it or something. Yeah. And all the guys are like, all the guys are like, ah, it's like, so oh weird. And that's also just like, is this really what's like going through boys heads? Like, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I always found this very problematic. Problematic in terms of like offensive or problematic in terms of like it doesn't make any sense or both. And that it doesn't make sense. I mean, okay. it's, I find it less offensive as more that it just doesn't make sense. As yeah, to like, yeah. this, this wouldn't happen. Okay, so a little more at the dance. Caroline's like noticing that Jake's acting a little distant from her. And we get the sense that their relationship, she has this line where she says she likes to fantasize that they're the richest, most popular adults in town and that like Jake's house is her house. And like, I don't know, it doesn't really give you too much of an idea of what connects them, but they must have been dating for a while. So it's kind of weird. Right. But it's probably just one of those like, we're the popular people, so we should end up together relationship which I think we covered sort of in can't hardly wait mm-hmm. to sort of yeah. that, that sort of dynamic, you know? So this scene, this scene that I'm going to talk about right now though, I love, okay. The, the scene where she, Sam goes up to talk to Jake. She goes right up to him at the coat like table or whatever. 
Then she turns around because she loses her um, nerve. But then he turns around, sees her, and I think taps on her shoulder or something. She looks yeah. at him again, and is, and he smiles at her. I think he might even say hi, but he mm -hmm. smiles at her like he's acknowledging her. She runs. She gives him a bow. She gives him a look of like almost disgust and runs off. And right. he is so confused. <laughs> and the song, the song for this is so great too. Um, I didn't know this at the time, but it's a divinal song. The people who wrote "I Touch Myself." And it's called Ring Me Up. And like, I hear that song, and I see this scene in my mind. It's like, this is this moment where you're like working up the nerve and then you have this adrenaline and then you lose your nerve. Ah, I feel it. I feel it so hard. Huh. I mean, this is a cute scene. I think it meant more to you than it did to me. But it it is, it makes you almost like endeared to Jake. You know, yeah. like there's something, it's like you're starting to kind of like, like him more you know what i mean like in these little scenes like he is quite charming in these like mm -hmm. small interactions you know yeah um, he has such a cute smile and he actually like bites his lip when he looks at her which <laughs> yeah. like makes it which makes it look like he's into her yes. and, you're, and it's like these little subtle things that he does as an actor that you're like oh yes please yes yeah, yeah. mm-hmm um, so we have a short scene that where the parents are having dinners with the in-laws. Um, Godfather music is playing. They're the kind of these stereotyped, I guess, Italian characters. But yeah, we have the Italian stereotype scene. Anything you want to say about it or should we move on to more fertile grounds? Yeah, no, let's go to the party scene. I like the scene. All right. Why do you like it? I mean, who doesn't like a good like high school party scene? I feel like so much thought goes into these these party scenes when when they're filming them and there's always so much going on you know what I mean like in the background that's what I like to watch in these scenes because there usually is like some other stuff going around which is like really funny or like interesting yeah. you know like the main thing we're supposed to get from this party is that it's like a total rager and everything's getting destroyed and that Jake is not into it anymore and meanwhile Caroline his girlfriend is totally drunk one thing, though, like, do, couldn't the dude have just, like, told Caroline he's not having a party and told everyone not to come over? Like, he kind of right. blames it on Caroline. And, I like, it didn't really occur to me until this time when I was thinking more deeply about the movie. Right. Dude, you can just, you, you say you're not having a party. Like, right. come on. And we also see, like, this is a very nice house. Like, this mm -hmm. is, like, a gorgeous house. And I... I'm just thinking like he's dead. Like his parents are going to kill him for like having that house destroyed. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and then, and then you think too of like, you're like, Oh my God, how pissed would you be if like your teenager destroyed <laughs> your house like that? Like, Oh my God. Like, yeah. And everybody's at this party. So they set it up so that like long duck dong and Marlene come to the party and the geeks come to the party and like, yeah, the whole thing. So everyone's kind John of converging. Cusack is at the party. Yeah, John Cusack's at the party. Um, but the only person who's not there seemingly is Samantha. So she didn't go. I guess her friend Randy's not there either, to be fair. And Jimmy Montrose, Randy's boyfriend. <laughs> I just really <laughs> love that there's this random character that we never see again called Jimmy Montrose. He gets a full last name and everything. He's <laughs> like kind of a dick. You're like, where'd this <laughs> guy come from? <laughs> maybe there's probably some like edited out scenes of him or something because this character was pretty fleshed out either that or like john hughes knew somebody named jimmy montrose and he just wanted to put their name in the movie i don't know <laughs> yeah during this party jake makes a call to samantha's house 
I like that a lot of this movie revolves around phones, like Sam on the phone to her friend, like, and then this phone call here that goes on. And it reminds you, like, people who didn't grow up with, like we did with landlines, you used to have to often talk to people's family to talk to them. And that's yes. what happens in this scene. Like Jake calls for Samantha and because her grandparents are staying in her bedroom, he gets her grandparents, but first he doesn't get anyone. He he's, he's annoyed that he doesn't get anyone at the house. And he says, eat me, not to someone just cause he's upset. But the grandma thinks it's an obscene phone caller. And it's this like whole funny scene then where the grandparents yell at Jake. Right. And also like, I, there's something about this scene as well. And maybe it's just because, I don't know, you're so used to like boys or men being not this assertive, but it's just like, I, it's like, you want to give him props for like calling her. Like, I like this girl. I'm going to call her. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. it, it's so like, whoa, like he does really like her, you know? And he's willing, he likes her so much. He's willing to like, talk to her family members like yeah that, that's crazy you know what i mean that just doesn't like like you said it just doesn't exist anymore that you would even have to now you can just text or send an emoji you know like yeah you don't have I to also, have these horrible interactions i also like when he talks to the grandpa he's really mad at him he gets really polite he says would it be possible for you to tell me if there's a samantha baker there and if so sir may i converse with her briefly yes yes <laughs> yes it oh, it's really so amazing it is really but i mean technically he is cheating on his girlfriend by wanting to like you know hook up with another girl i know point, i know right so weird so complicated she's not really in a position to be broken up with at the moment either though because caroline's totally drunk so there you go which we'll get to soon um yeah so in the aftermath of the party like people are kind of like have gone home who knows what time it is Jake looks at his destroyed house and he finds the geek trapped under a glass coffee table, presumably possibly running out of oxygen. That was my first thought is that like, God, that's dangerous. You know what I mean? I was like, yeah. who would do that? Like you could kill him. Like what if he couldn't, yeah. he couldn't get out? Like, yeah, it's scary. Yeah. But he and Jake then start talking women and um, yeah. And now we're going to go to the spoiler section. So if you haven't seen 16 candles and you still want to, despite our very mixed uh, review of it, then go ahead and see it and come back. All right. So let's see really quick. There's a scene where Samantha's back home sleeping on the sofa and her dad comes to talk with her. Uh, this scene was added to the script because Hughes wanted Paul Dooley to play the father and it hadn't been fleshed out enough yet. So this scene exists because of that. I think it's a good scene to have in the movie. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, I, I don't know. What do you think this scene is supposed to like represent? Just like daddy-daughter time? I don't know. I think it's like a scene where she's feeling down and we're kind of being reminded that like she has people on her side. You know, that even though mm -hmm. like a lot of teenager movies, the teenagers are kind of on their own. But teenagers really, a lot of us really do have parents who are going to be there to talk with us. So I think right. it, it does that. And it, it lends a certain seriousness to the to the movie as well that it doesn't necessarily have otherwise. Mm, okay. Yeah. And the dad's being like supportive and being like, if he can't see in you all the beautiful things I see, then like there's something wrong with him. The kind of standard thing your parent might say to you in that situation. Yeah. 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 It's a nice scene. The scene used to be creepy. Okay. Like, I'll just say, John Hughes originally had a line in it where he's where the guy, the father is supposed to, like, um, touch her, like, on the back and then say, 
where like like a hug kind of thing but then say where the heck are your panties and paul dooley was like no this is creepy and molly ringwald's (laughs) mom was like no this is creepy and so paul dooley came up with a line when you finally meet your mr right make sure he knows you wear the pants of the family and the whole point it was because hughes wanted a line that would like transition you to her remembering she forgot her underpants which I, I mean, I would remember anyway, personally, but anyway, you know what I mean? Right, right. Yeah, that scene would have been absolutely creepy. I'm glad that was not in the movie. That would have completely changed the dynamic. Again, John Hughes, man, kind of, <laughs> kind of creepy and like sexist <laughs> and like, like what's going through your head, dude? Yeah, it's, it's a really strange thing. Yeah. Anyway, now we come to the perhaps the creepiest part of the movie. So Jake and Ted have bonded. Um, Caroline, Jake's girlfriend, is totally passed out. Uh, Jake points out he has Caroline's in the other room and, quote, I could violate her 10 different ways if I wanted to. When Ted asks, why don't you then? Jake says, I'm bored of it. Like, she's beautiful and all, but I want a serious relationship. Um, Ted thinks that's great. Jake has found out that Ted has her underpants and that, like, she gave them to him, like, as a favor, not because they had sex. And so Jake proposes a trade, basically. He's going to get Sam's underpants and he's going to let Ted drive Caroline home, which like he might just mean drive Caroline home, but it really feels like he's like saying and do stuff with her if you want. What do you what is your read on it? I think he does say something like that. Like he says something to the effect of like, I I don't know. There is a line where it's very clear that like, I don't think it's ever completely clear. There is a line where he says, have fun. Okay. Like when he, when they're driving off in the car, but when they're actually, when he's actually like, um, when he's actually like making the proposal, he says, just drive Caroline home, but make sure she gets home. But it doesn't say anything about like, you know, and touch her. But there is a suggestion that she is passed out and vulnerable, you know, in the violate her comment. Right. Right. Yes, it is definitely like implied in some way. So he gives Ted the car. Um, Caroline gets in the car. She wakes up briefly and Jake like convinces like Caroline that it's okay. Like by saying like they're the same person or some shit like that. I don't know. The details are not important right now. And there there is Um, sort of, I mean, but there, there is some like gratuitous scenes, like the scene of them like carrying her like to mm -hmm. the car, you know, and she's Mm -hmm. wearing like a very short skirt. So there's very Mm -hmm. like sexualized there and I, I you didn't mention earlier but there is a scene where it shows like how drunk she is is that she, when she gets her hair caught in the oh yeah the door of like the door jake's of bedroom. jake's room yeah basically he shuts the door in her face to call sam and then gets her hair caught in the door and she's so drunk that she gets her friend to cut her hair so like this is like the setup to like how mm-hmm out of it she is which is like i guess supposed to be funny but it's just sort of sad you know like you're like oh this is terrible i think the line you're thinking of that's most suggestive is jake when when they notice that caroline doesn't know who anyone is jake says she's totally gone have fun so yeah Yeah. that could be easily read as like um yeah yeah because it wouldn't really be fun to drive her home so right yeah, and then as Ted is driving Caroline home, like, it's supposed to be, like, a joke on him that, like, it's not as much fun as he thought it was because she wakes up and she's being crazy and making it hard for him to drive and she feeds him a birth control pill and all this crap, right? Going on, though, she, there's after she's, like, kind of calmed down a little bit, 
she like lies down in, in Ted's lap and says, I love you. And then Ted like looks towards the audience, like, like a fourth wall break and says, this is getting good. So the audience is clearly supposed to identify with him having this like hot girl, totally vulnerable with her head in his lap. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oof, I never identified with, when I was watching this as a kid, I was like, what the fuck? Like, like, I didn't like this. Like, I wasn't like angry about it because I didn't really know to be angry about it. It was just how comedy was, but I didn't like it. It didn't feel like I was represented in any way. Yeah, I don't like it either. And it, and it, it's again, this like creepy, rapey kid. Like, how did this kid get so rapey? You know, like, like, is this, (laughs) this is just such, is this just like normal behavior? Is this just like, and I guess it's a sign of the times. Like, I guess this is just what teenage boys were taught. I mean, think about it. Think this was a very popular movie that people went and mm-hmm. saw. So this is something that teenage boys, if they didn't already think this, this is something that they viewed and thought it yeah. was all right. That like, oh, if you get a girl drunk enough and she's so out of it, then you can just have sex with her. And it's not a big deal. You know, like, yeah, it, it's so crazy that that was such like, a normal thing and no one even thought thought that he was in the wrong and revenge of the nerds came out the same year 1984 and it has a scene where one of the nerds dresses up like the popular girl's boyfriend on purpose like at some costume party and goes into like this dark space and tricks her into having sex with him so same year and in that one, she also likes the sex. And so the thing, the other part of this thing is on the next morning, we see Caroline and Ted and they've woken up. Is Ted supposed to have been drunk? Because he can't remember that he had, like, whether he had sex with her. Like, I never saw him drinking, but like, I don't know. He's claiming he doesn't remember anything. Right. And, but then she said, I'm pretty sure, but she tells him, I'm pretty sure we did have sex. And then he says, like, did you enjoy it? And then she's like, you know, I have a weird feeling that I did. And so it's like this idea that not only are you going to take advantage of this beautiful woman, but she's going to like it as well. Right. Yes. So rapey. So horrible. The messages are just like so bad. Yeah, I don't I don't like it. And it, I, I again, I don't think anybody found any problems with it until somewhat yeah. recently. When you're like watching yeah. and you're like, oh, wait, this is problematic. Like you just think like, oh, that's just normal behavior. Like that's just that's just what happens. Yeah. Shouldn't have gotten that drunk. And like, see, just to clean up the plot really quick um, to, to finish up this section of the plot. Jake sees Caroline and Ted kissing after they've had this little talk. And then Jake and Caroline break up. And um, Jake is initially a little bit mad at Ted, but then Caroline says, no, it wasn't too terrible. (laughs) It's just like, oh my God. Anyway. Yeah. This whole, this whole scene is very problematic. It's so problematic because it's just like weird. Again, written, written by a dude. And it's, it's written by a dude, but it's also packaged in the middle of this movie that has like this sensitive portrayal of a teenage girl and a beautiful portrayal of like her romance. So Molly Ringwald in 2018 wrote this article for The New Yorker about these movies in wake of the Me Too movement and how she looks at them now. And there's a really um, great quote for her from her that says, there's a lot of great quotes, I'm going to do a couple of them. But one of them, she said, it's hard for me to understand how John was able to write with so much sensitivity and also have such a glaring blind spot. 
So when she's referring to these certain scenes and like, that's kind of how I feel. Cause he has moments where you're like, wow, he really gets even teenage girls. And then you have other moments of like, what the fuck is this? Mm-hmm. And so the larger context of the article, she was basically talking about showing these movies to her daughter, um, looking back at the breakfast club and the scenes with Judd Nelson, you know, where he's harassing her. And then this, the part with Caroline and 16 candles, which she wasn't really involved with. So she didn't have any input on those scenes, but when she views it, she's talking about them. She says, um, quote, back then I was only vaguely aware of how inappropriate much of John's writing was, given my limited experience and what was considered normal at the time. It took even longer for me to fully comprehend the scene late in 16 Candles when the dreamboat Jake essentially trades his drunk girlfriend Caroline to the geek to satisfy the latter's sexual urges in return for Samantha's underwear. The geek takes Polaroids with Carolyn to have proof of his conquest. When she wakes up in the morning with someone she doesn't know, he asks her if she enjoyed it. Caroline shakes her head in wonderment and says, you know, I have this weird feeling I did. She had to have a feeling about it rather than a thought because thoughts are things that we have when we are conscious and she wasn't. It's like, yeah. Greenwald's a really good writer. Um, Yeah. Yeah, no, she's like captured that. It must be really weird to like to to yeah. I and she goes on to say to have been a part of that and then like look back on it and be like, what the fuck? But it is interesting to see like what their expectations were of like sex and consent and you know what we consider rape now was definitely not rape then you know what i mean um yeah Yeah, i think greenwald has a good uh, point on that she she writes in her article quote erasing history is a dangerous road when it comes to art change is essential but so too is remembering the past in all of its transgression and barbarism so that we may properly gauge how far we have come and also how far we still need to go and I, I, t- I would tend to agree with her on that. I think like this tendency they're starting to have like to like uh, uh, cut words or scenes out of movies. I don't like that. I think like you need to see the the product of its time for what it was, right? Mm-hmm. And like, mm-hmm. sure, have a warning on it or have somebody explain it. Why not? But like, but like to erase it, it's like trying to clean up the past in a way. And yeah. like the past wasn't clean. And that's part of our history and something that's worth knowing about, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to understand the struggles people had to deal with, to be honest, like to understand, like in this case, like what it was like to be a woman at that time and why it was so hard for so many people to come right. forward for sexual assault or something. Mm-hmm. Because it was so normalized mm-hmm. like that, that wasn't even considered assault. Like that yeah. whole scenario. Yeah, no. like that. Yeah. And interestingly in the article, Haviland Morris didn't really see it that way at first either. So that's an interesting, they have an evolution of her thoughts from talking to Molly Ringwald about it. So. Yeah. Yeah. So this really makes like, unfortunately, I have to kind of like erase that this happens from the movie in order for the ending to still be satisfying to me. Yeah. Because I'm like, oh, yeah, Shake's not that great either. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But we get other like other things going on in the morning. We get some longing shots of Jake and Sam thinking about each other. Um, Mom apologizes to Sam for forgetting her birthday. Uh, the grandma's making breakfast is funny because like you've got the one grandma who's like domestic and cooks things and the other grandma's like the one who smokes and her ash is about to fall into food. Mm-hmm. And then um, Samantha finds out Samantha finds out from Randy. Randy says, my little brother paid a buck to see your underwear. Sam screams. 
And then we have the family leaving for the wedding. And there's actually this really hilarious scene of how difficult they're finding it to all get into the car together. <laughs> I remember car trips like that where nobody could figure out where to sit and it just took forever. Mm-hmm. And then we have like, um, I'm going to play one more clip of, of Long Duck Dong. Cause like, this is my favorite fucking scene of his. I love this scene. I feel like this is a scene where he's kind of transgressive against what you would expect from his character and where he's like um, flouting authority. Oh, no more Yankee, my wanky. The donga need food. <laughs> Hell, he's, he's three sheets to the wind. <laughs> he's drunk as a scum. Oh, why don't you shut up, Fred? Shut up, dude. Dong. 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 Grandpa is talking to you. <laughs> Dong. Where is my automobile? Automobile? <laughs> like <laughs> big leg. <laughs> Why, you little scuzzbag. Wow! So I didn't even remember the part where the grandma kicks him at the end, but the grandma kicks him at the end, which like is not the part that I think is great. The part that I think is great is like the grandparents are acting like total idiots, like clapping at him like he's a pet or something. And then Mm -hmm. he's making, they say automobile and he's totally making fun of them when he's like automobile. He's just like, he's fucking with them and they so deserve to be fucked with. And I think like when I talk, when other students and I would talk about this scene, like we're in school, we were like on his side. We thought he was cool and the grandparents were ridiculous. And like this scene would get quoted all the time. There was a girl who did a forensics reading where she did like Judd Nelson's monologue from breakfast club. And she did long duck dong from this scene. And like, they were examples of, yeah, but, but as examples of teenagers, like flouting adult authority, like that was like they were like in a collection together and like i think that's like i think it's a really important part of his character too like as much as it can be offensive like it's also like he's given agency to like go his own way and like again grandpa fred comes off best here because he's treating him like a normal kid he's like oh he's drunk yeah yeah exactly (laughs) i thought that too i was like oh grandpa fred is totally just like yes doesn't seem to stereotype him as much He's more like, I think he's more like thinking, oh, this kid's fun. He's drunk. I like to drink too. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Like the other thing though, that I only noticed this time, I swear to God, after all these years of watching it, I only just noticed a, where's Marlene B is she in the lake with the car? Oh my God. I didn't even think about that. Oh my God. That's terrible. I don't know. Like what happened here? Like what's the, what's the timeline? Like there was a cut scene where they had had sex and they were smoking cigarettes. So they definitely had sex. Then what's the timeline after that? Did she go home with someone else and Dong went off on his own? And how did he get out of the car? This and like, I don't fucking know. Anyway. Yeah. There we are. Okay. So we come to out to the wedding. Um, The main thing to be gotten from the wedding is that the sister is started her period early and she takes four muscle relaxers. So she is like drugged out for her own wedding. Yeah. A weird, a weird, I was, when I was watching this, I was like, God, this is such a weird like subplot that she has her period on her wedding day. And I guess you, you wouldn't want to have your period on your wedding day because then it's just this other inconvenience, but they make it so much of an inconvenience that's like well yeah you, you just go on you know like yeah. again 
I think this is one of those things that's like, okay, this is written by a dude. Like, well, yeah. if you have your period, like your whole life revolves around having your period, you know? <laughs> like to, to be to be fair, there are some women whose periods are so terrible that they do get like incapacitated, but I don't think that's what he had in mind personally. Ugh, so yeah. yeah, I guess. Yeah. So Jake goes over to see Samantha at her house. Long Duck Dong answers the door. Um, and there's this whole thing where like, he keeps, he says that, sh uh, she got married, like that Sam's getting married. She's kind of, he's kind of mixed up the sisters, but like Jake is like perplexed. He's like married. And, 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 and Long Duck Dong's like married. And he's like married. And he's like married. Jeez. I kind of like that too. <laughs> I just like getting Watanabe. What can I say? I like him yeah, a lot. Yeah. Then like, yeah, we have the rest of the wedding. I don't really care about the wedding that much. It's like, it's whatever. I don't know. Did you want to say anything more about it? No. Okay. Um, Sam runs back into the, like her sister's leaving. There's a whole comic bit about how drugged she is while she's leaving for the limo. Sam runs back in to get her sister's veil. And then when she comes out of the church, everyone's pretty much gotten into their cars and they're starting to leave. She missed her sister. And there's, this is where the iconic end scene starts. So iconic. It's so iconic. The scene. So the cars start pulling away. We hear, if you were here from the Thompson twins, which like, if I hear that song ever, I think of this. It's just completely associated in my mind. And then as all the cars clear, we see Jake Ryan standing in front of his red Porsche in his beautiful like little sweater vest outfit, looking at Samantha. And then he like waves at her and she's like, who me? Like with a hand gesture. And he's like, yeah, you. And then he comes up to talk to her. And I've got a clip of um this little scene here and it, it's i've also i should tell you i've clipped the scene like i've clipped it in the middle i clipped out a section of just music so this is them seeing each other at the church and then the very end part of the movie hi 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 what are you doing here i heard you were here you came here for me. Is that okay? <laughs> yeah, it's okay. Do you have to go to reception now? I'm supposed to. Can I call you later? Sure. I mean, no. No, I can't call you later? Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm not going to the reception. Oh, great. Thanks for getting Mandy's back. Thanks for coming over. Thanks for coming to get me. Happy birthday, Samantha. Good wish. It already came true. Like, what I want to know is, like, when did he get that cake? 
like, where? Like, wow. Like, oh, yeah, we should. Yeah, the audience can't see. So we should tell them. Um, yeah, the last, the very bit, last bit of this part um, scene, they are sitting. This is the iconic moment. This is the visual. This is the one that gets replicated the most. They're sitting on a table with a lick, a cake with birthday candles between them. And that's when he's like, make a wish. She's like, it already came true. Right. And she's still in her like bridesmaid outfit. So she kind of mm-hmm. looks like a princess, like in mm-hmm. a way, like she's like very dressed up. And they, they kiss over the cake that is lit yes. with candles. And yes. I think, yes, that is a very iconic scene. I think the more iconic scene is the seeing her on the church steps and then her okay. being lit and then him being him just standing there and like the seas part like all the people part out of the way and then he's sort of in the back and she's like oh shit he's just standing there like waiting yeah. like a fucking yeah. stalker and then but like in a good oh, way okay yeah <laughs> like, like, like i never perceived a- him as a stalker to me this is like like this well aside from the fact that he like t- gave his passed out girlfriend to the geek okay let's pretend if that hadn't happened I would still look at this character as like this icon of like a guy that I would want because like all through high school, I would like pine after these guys and like, I would like be in love with them. And some, and a few times I even tried and I just wouldn't get anywhere. And my dream was that the the popular guy that I was interested in or the cool guy that I was interested, whoever it might've been, he would do the Jake Ryan on me. He would show up, he would pursue me and he would show up somewhere one day where I just was with my family and he would choose me. And I think like, for me, it's like less about Jake Ryan himself and Michael Schofleen. It's more about like putting myself in Samantha's shoes and applying this dream to me and whichever guy at the time that I was into. And there were a few of them. There were a few in high school that just crushed me, like that I just really wanted something to happen. And like, I kept thinking like, it will happen. One of these days you're going to get your 16 candles moment. So do you think, do you think like women are mostly like into Michael Schofield because he's hot or is it this dream? Or do you think it's a combo? I think it's a combo. I think it's a combo. Like he is so good looking. Like he really is like this, that, uh, Michael Schofling is so handsome and like so perfect in that like all American handsomeness, you know? And like you said, there is like an easiness about him, like that quiet, quiet attractiveness, um, which is, which is always a winner. Yeah. And also just like the dream of it, you know, having someone show up for you, having someone be into you that you've been crushing on for such a long time and have it come true. Make a wish. It already came true. I have to say I it again because that's like for me some of the best writing in this movie. Like that's perfect. That scene you think there that's, was scene. that's good writing. Make a wish. It already came true. Yes, it's really? like a fucking oh God, iconic. That's the worst. It's an, that's the worst. No, it is an iconic romantic line in a movie, dude. Like it is. It is. Seriously, but it's so cheesy. It's so cheesy. I feel like the line where he goes the line before when he's standing there and she's like who me and he's like yeah you i feel like that's more iconic than or like more relatable or more honest than where she's like i wish make a wish it already came true like that's so Dude, fucking cheesy. but the thing is if if he had said that to me i would have said it already came true that's what i would have said really you would have said yeah. that word for if word, i thought verbatim, of it if I, if, if I was able to think oh that God. quickly on the situation i would have said I would it. yes never say that i would never say that oh my god no that's <laughs> so cringe that's so cringy well i'm that cringe person serena <laughs> 
Apparently you are. Oh my God. In fact, I might have said it to somebody once. I can't remember. Oh my God. And then what happened? Uh, they they probably had sex with me. I don't know. Like Oh my God. <laughs> Some people like corny girls, Serena. I'm just saying. Like yeah, obviously okay. Lee does, because Lee Lee puts up with my corny ass. So there you go. Right. Maybe it's just, right. just too. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just laughing. Okay. Um, yeah, so any more final thoughts about the movie? We, we're going to talk about the soundtrack just a little bit, but any more thoughts about the movie? Nope. It, it it ended with a dream, a dream come true. Yeah. If we forget the fact that Jake gave his, again, yeah, it's a whole thing. I don't know. It's so complicated now. Like everything in this movie, I can't just feel one way about it ever anymore. Right. Yeah. It's like a time capsule. It's a time capsule, yeah. really. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't I didn't look too deeply into the soundtrack, but I just wanted to say like that soundtrack was really important to John Hughes. He was really heavily involved in choosing the music for his films. And then he would go actually make sure it came together in the final like audio cuts too. So he was like right there, like tinkering around with stuff. And also he had a certain type of music he liked. So there I got this um box set from the library. Um of called Life Moves Pretty Fast, the John Hughes mixtapes. And it's a box set of um, all these different songs from his different movies. And there's an interview with Matthew Broderick um, in the liner notes there where he says, Hughes took pride in peppering his films with music that wasn't necessarily at the top of the charts in America. Um, A childhood friend is quoted in the same liner notes as saying, anytime we'd go to the record store, John would hit the import section immediately. Mostly it was British imports. And then um, one of the second unit directors on his films, Bill Brown, said, in the 1980s, you couldn't escape John's musical influence. John's superpower was what he could do to an artist or band by featuring their music in his films. And I would say, like, I don't know if this this movie, I think if you were here, the, the Thompson Twins is definitely something I associate specifically with this. Um, but I think some of the other movies have songs that are even more embedded with them. Wouldn't you say that's so... For sure. Yes. I mean, like there's such iconic songs in his movies and it is interesting to think about. We think of them as being like these famous songs, but to think that they weren't before these movies makes total sense, you know, because a lot of them are. Well, a lot of the 80s were just kind of one hit wonders. I mean, these aren't super big bands or super well-known bands, you know. Yeah, some of the sometimes he has super. He, sometimes the bands would become well known, but yeah, sometimes they would be these more one hit wonder type situations too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, like when when I, when I think of a John Hughes song, I think "Don't You Forget About Me" from The Breakfast Club is the first one that comes to mind. Right, right? exactly. Yeah, and then "Pretty in Pink" even had its own song called "Pretty in Pink." <laughs> right. And like, um, yeah, what's there's another song from Pretty in Pink too, which I can't remember off the top of my head. Is, right now. is it? Tr- is it? It's like another. Sp- bando ballet song i think like if you if you leave oh yeah if you leave don't yeah. leave now yeah please yeah. don't orchestral maneuvers in the dark not spando yes yes yeah. you're right and and it, it's like that song and it keeps like repeating like in that dance scene where it's just like how long has this song been on <laughs> <laughs> but yes yes were there any standout songs from this soundtrack for you or scenes where you noticed the music particularly um definitely true and that is spando yeah. ballet right yeah so yeah. definitely that song because i love that song other than that like 
the other songs don't stick out to me as much. What is the last song that is played um, in the last scene? What is that song? If you were if you were here, the Thompson Twins. Yeah. Oh, okay. I do like that song, but um, this particular movie, the soundtrack doesn't stand out to me as much. See, when I actually went and listened to some of the songs in full, like I appreciated them a little more. I don't mm-hmm. think there is like dominant in the in the movie necessarily as they may become in later movies but um yeah a lot of times they're more background in this one but yeah the divinal song is really awesome i like the song hang up the phone that's playing when jake is calling samantha um mm-hmm. i love the opening title by kajagugu is that how you pronounce their band name anyway the opening title song i really like as well and he uses like also a mixture of older songs a lot of times like um the boy i'm gonna marry for example in this movie yeah so that's an inter- he does that too in Pretty in Pink. He uses like um, try a little tenderness. So it's interesting. He mixes like these obscure British '80s music and with this older American music, soul music. Often. All right, we're now going to do our double feature recommendations. So my first double feature recommendation is Sleeping Beauty from 1959, um, the animated Disney movie, and it's because Aurora in that movie turns 16. And I really did when I was growing up, like I had this feeling, I had this like feeling of being caught between two different ideas of being 16. One of them came from Sleeping Beauty, where you're supposed to have beautiful, long flowing hair and beautiful breasts and a tiny waist and a beautiful voice. And you're supposed to be like perfect and a princess. And the other was like this Molly Ringwald, like looking in her mirror at herself and being disappointed. And like, I just felt like those were the two cultural reference points for me about what it was going to be like to turn 16. And so it'd be, to me, it's really interesting to watch them together, even though plot wise, they have very little in common, but they are these like iconic ideas of of what you're supposed to be when you're an older girl or a younger woman. You know what I mean? That transition. So I like that. (laughs) Would that have ever occurred to you in a million years? I was wondering (laughs) when I read that, I was just like, why is this like one of her picks? But okay. Now that you explain it, it makes sense. Yeah. So I think that would be interesting. Like the 16 year old girl pack uh, movie, Mm -hmm. movie marathon. My second pick is mermaids from 1990. And that is because it is another movie where Michael Schofflin is hanging around being dreamy. And this time he doesn't even give a girl away to a drunk girl away to another guy. So, (laughs) and mermaids stars Cher, Winona Ryder and Christina Ricci is like a little kid. And it's set in the 1960s, and it's basically about um, Winona Ryder's mom, played by Cher, is always, like, going off and moving the family around to different places and always, like, kind of hitting on guys. And Winona Ryder's character, meanwhile, is torn between having kind of lustful feelings, mostly for Michael Schofield's character, and wanting to be a nun. And it's, like, a really great, like, um, family of women, a, a comedy about a family of women. It has some great music in it, some great fashion. And, yeah, you get to see Michael Schofield. So everything's yeah. good. And I love this movie. I love this movie. I really oh, good. Do. I do. I oh, love cool. this movie so much. Yep. And then my third double feature recommendation is Pretty in Pink from 1986, where you get to see more Molly Ringwald. This time she is directed by Howard Deutsch, who also directed Some Kind of Wonderful. Um, I'm, I like, I don't like necessarily, I'm not like shipping necessarily her romance with Andrew McCarthy, but like, I don't mind it either. I think they they have pretty good chemistry together. I mostly like this movie because of her character, who's kind of like a little, like doesn't have as much money and she makes her own clothes as a result. And she has a job at a store where Annie Potts works. 
And I just love that whole dynamic of being a more of a realistic girl, less of an upper middle class girl and just more of an every girl. She has a nice relationship with her dad in the movie too, which I like, and it just seems very grounded. So that's, those are some of the things I like about Pretty in Pink. And it has a bitchin' soundtrack as well and great fashion. So recommend. All right. So I'm going to do my double features. And my first double feature is sort of ironic because that is exactly what started playing after I watched 16 Candles. <laughs> this was the next movie that was up and I just let it play. And I was like, okay, this is going to be my next one. Cause this is what, I don't know what I watched it on like a uh, Hulu or something. I was like, this is what Hulu has decided this is my next movie. And I had it, I had it seen St. Elmo's fire. Um, so I chose St. Elmo's fire, which came out in 1985. Um, I hadn't really seen it recently. And this movie cracked me up because there's so many plot holes and problems with this movie have you seen this movie recently not in a very long time no oh my god if we if we were to do an episode about this movie there is some romance in it so if we did an episode about this movie like we would rip this movie apart (laughs) (laughs) it is so easily rip apartable if that's even a thing but it is it is considered like the first movie in the like brat pack um thing right and it has a lot of those like key players and a lot of them, a lot of them went on to have bigger careers like Demi Moore. Um, it has Judd Nelson, Ali Sheedy, um, Emilio Estevez, Rob Lowe. So these are some like huge names that weren't that huge at the time when this movie came out. Um, and it's basically about um, the lives of these seven friends after they graduate from some school in the east coast um graduate college which is sort of ironic because this movie came out in 1985 and then actors like ali sheedy and judd nelson actually like de-aged to play younger characters in in other movies so um yeah it's 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 good check it out definitely a brat pack movie um (laughs) my second choice is four keeps which came out in 1988. It also stars Molly Ringwald. And this, again, is one of those movies that I have some strange memories wrapped around from watching it probably way too young. I do think the 80s were very preoccupied with teenage pregnancy. Do you agree oh, with yeah. that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there was, there was, there was all these after-school specials. There was Degrassi yeah. Junior High. Yeah. Yeah, it was, like, this thing. And, like, there was just so much fear wrapped around it and so much, like, stigma and all of these things, all these warnings. And and that's basically what this movie is about. Even though I think Molly Ringwald's character gets pregnant, like, right after graduation. But it's just a story about people who are too young um, or very young, not too young, um, and have a kid and there's a, their trials and tribulations of having a baby and going through that and their futures being derailed by having a kid. Yeah, I remember this movie sort of freaking me out about <laughs> teenage pregnancy because I guess technically she was still a teenager. I think she's supposed to be 18 um, when she has yeah. a baby. So I remember being like, oh, this is, oh, teenage pregnancy. Oh, this is so bad, you know. Um, so that's funny. And then my last pick is, of course, and we've talked about this before throughout this whole episode, is 1985's The Breakfast Club, which I, I think is my favorite teenage genre John Hughes movie. And it has Molly Ringwald in it, Anthony Michael Hall, who are both in 16 Candles. And I think 
I don't know. I just love this movie so much. It, it's so <laughs> quotable. It's so funny. It's so iconic. Again, I haven't watched it super recently, so there's probably a lot of problems in it, you know, that we could definitely pick apart. But yeah, this was, like I said, this was the movie that I would watch when I would skip school and I would skip school and then, <laughs> and then watch The Breakfast Club, which is totally ironic. So anyways, yep. So those are my picks. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Serena, for having such a long and involved, uh, complex conversation about 16 Candles with me. Thank you, listeners, too, for hanging in with us. Um, coming up on every rom-com, we're going to be doing some high school movies, including To All the Boys I've Loved Before, Alex Strangelove, which is a fantastic Netflix movie, too, which you should check out, Grease, and a couple more, and later probably heading into our L.A. Stories series. So keep an eye out for that. Yeah, and don't forget to visit us or send us feedback at feedback at everyromcom.com. We would love to hear from you. So thank you again, and goodbye. Thank you, guys. Goodbye.